Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cryptids of all ages, and of course, our secret alien overlords, welcome to our wonderful, exciting, thrilling, non-stop, fast-paced, action-packed, adjective, 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 virtual podcast festival. I am your host, Brad, and I'm welcoming you to this Bad Things of Summer event. Now, I know your first question is... What on earth is a virtual podcast event? Fair enough. Well, there's lots of podcast events and conferences and, you know, collectives that go on throughout the world. And they are very exciting and very much fun to go to. They are also extremely expensive. They require travel. They require waiting in line. And typically, you only get to see podcasts that appear in the top 100 of your favorite charting website. You don't get to hear from the underdogs, the little guys, the independent podcasts like us. So that's what we've done here. Seven podcasts have bonded together, kind of like an Avengers-like moment, to present you with this wonderful show today. We've stripped away all the corporate all the money, all the greed, and we're we're giving you fresh, new, interesting topics, ideas, and takes on everything. And the best thing of all is you get to listen to this festival without other people around you. You can go to your bathroom whenever you want. You can hit pause and go make a turkey sandwich whenever you want. It's wonderful. We hope you enjoy it. We've put a lot of time and work into presenting this. It's being presented through multiple feeds so we can reach out to as many people as possible. And again, we're doing this in support of independent podcasters like us who are trying to make a little bit of noise in this giant sea of corporate plastic feeling podcasts. So we're going to start off our show with the Strange Sessions. The Strange Sessions is a wonderful podcast about anything unexplained in the world. It's hosted by Kurt and Krista. They are best friends and part of a paranormal ghost hunting team. They offer up episodes, I think, every other week and always cover very interesting topics. They do a great job researching them. They do a great job presenting them. And they always bring up very interesting points. On top of that, they have fun pickle jokes. Okay, well, that's a lie. The pickle jokes usually suck, but they have them. And they, honestly, this podcast reminds me of being like a teenager or a preteen at a friend's house who has a cool older brother or sister who sits there and teaches you things that no one else has ever brought to your attention before. That's what it feels like to listen to this podcast. So without further ado, I'm going to let Kurt and Krista take over, and let's see what fun offering they have for us to listen to today. Hey, strangers. 
This is Krista with me is Kurt. We are paranormal investigators and longtime friends and our love of all things strange turned into this podcast called The Strange Sessions. Yes, Krista and I both, we are fans of true crime stories, but a lot of our podcast deals with the paranormal because we are in a ghost hunting group together. We have had a lot of experiences together and... You know, Krista likes stories about Bigfoot. She's mm-hmm. like, if there's a story about Bigfoot, she's a happy gal. I'm an enthusiast. She's She is a Bigfoot enthusiast. And I like stories about mysteries that are just weird, like uh, whether or not we are living in a computer simulation or the Betts Sphere or Captain Coochie's Key Lime Pies, which is one of my favorites. And we just decided to do a podcast and kind of didn't really expect anybody to listen other than our friends and family. And it turned out that we have a lot of listeners. So we're an acquired taste. And we're they an acquired just, taste. They uh, like how we taste, I pardon guess. Pardon our Wisconsin accents. Oh, I'm not going to apologize for nothing. <laughs> There's nothing. We, we get, it's a love or hate thing. A lot of people <laughs> love the accents and a lot of people hate them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we are the host for the Strange Sessions. A typical episode includes? Includes, we do generally do a taste test, and I don't even remember exactly how that started. I don't either. But we have listeners sending us stuff to try. From all over the world. From all over the world. And one of our big hits that we both loved was the peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich, which yes. I never would have thought would be good, but... It was delicious. It was delicious. And we generally answer listener questions during an episode. We give shout outs to listeners that join our closed group, The Strangers, on Facebook. We do song recommendations. We do song recommendations. Terrible, terrible pickle jokes. Really bad pickle jokes. Oh, and there's usually a topic mixed in there somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> so if we if we get to it, we get to it. Yeah. But there's usually a topic. Some of our recent ones have been uh, the hat man, a mm-hmm. shadow figure that a lot of people see. We have done the Mandela effect. Missing 411 is Missing 411 is one of our big ones, and that's mm-hmm. actually how a lot of people find us. But we like to do true crime, any, especially when there's something... There's got to be a twist. There's a twist. Like if there's something twist, twist or something weird about it, we generally like to cover something like that. Yep. And that is the story that we're going to be talking about today because it's bizarre, and it's one that a lot of people liked when we covered it on our podcast. And you may have already heard about it, but it is the strange case of David Glenn Lewis. A majority of this story comes from two sources. A post in the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit from someone with the name Bridge Oral, and an October 25th, 2016 post on the blog website I did it for Jody.com called, quote, Do You Know the Way to John Benet? Anomalous Crimes and the Unsettled Death of David Glenn Lewis. David Glenn Lewis was born in 1953 in Borger, Texas. He graduated high school in 1972 and went to Texas Tech University, where he was an honor student, graduating with a degree in political science, and then received a doctorate in jurisprudence in 1979. He then passed a bar exam and became an attorney in Amarillo, Texas, and served as a judge in the town of Dumas from 1986 to 1990. By all accounts, he was a very smart, very driven person. In 1981, he married his wife, Karen, and their only child, a daughter, was born a few years later. David was a highly regarded member of a local church. He was a Sunday school teacher and a district chairman involved in the Boy Scouts of America. David was said by all who knew him to be an extremely dedicated family man, close with his parents and his brother, and an active charity volunteer. So, by all accounts, a pretty upstanding a pretty upstanding guy. And kind of like an ordinary life, yeah, really. Yeah, 
yeah, an nothing, ordinary life, but like strange. a very giving, very, yeah. very nice man. So now we fast forward to 1993. David is 39 years old. On Thursday, January 28, 1993, his wife and nine-year-old daughter leave their home in Amarillo and head about 400 miles away to Dallas for a weekend of shopping, leaving David to spend the upcoming Super Bowl weekend at home in Amarillo. It was Super Bowl 27, which was the Cowboys versus the Bills. Late on Sunday evening, January 31st, the night of the Super Bowl, Karen and their daughter return home. They walk in expecting to find David there, with the Super Bowl having ended a few hours ago, but the house is empty. They see that the VCR is still recording the channel the Super Bowl was on. This becomes an important point later. They also find what looks like two freshly made turkey sandwiches on a plate in the refrigerator, and they find David's watch and wedding ring sitting on the kitchen counter. Nothing in the house seems disturbed or out of place, and since the VCR was recording the Super Bowl, they assume that a friend called and asked David if he wanted to come over and watch the game, so he left to go do that. When David still isn't home the following day, Monday, February 1st, Karen calls the Amarillo Police Department and reports him missing. On the following day, Tuesday, February 2nd, the police find David's car parked downtown outside the Potter County Court Building. Under the floor mat, they find David's house and car keys. His checkbook, credit cards, and driver's license were also inside the car. This accounted for all of David's personal items, so nothing was missing except for David himself. When the police were interviewing his wife, Karen, she told them that David had told her sometime before his disappearance that he felt his life was in danger, but he didn't want to tell her why or how. She believed that his disappearance had something to do with this. David was supposed to be in Dallas the following week for a deposition in a conflict of interest case between his former law firm and a wealthy client. David had told his father that he had no intention of covering up any wrongdoings by his former firm and that he was going to, quote, tell the truth, whoever it hurts. Then, a little while later, the police made a puzzling discovery. Two plane tickets had been purchased under David's name around the time of his disappearance. The first ticket, purchased on the 31st, the day of the Super Bowl, was a ticket from Dallas to Amarillo, which was the route his wife and daughter would be taking that day. The second ticket, purchased a day later, which was the day after the Super Bowl and the day Karen had called the police about him being missing, was a ticket from the Los Angeles International Airport to Dallas. The police figured that the tickets being purchased showed that Dave left of his own accord and there wasn't any foul play. With no further evidence turning up, 11 months later the case was closed and David's family was left with no answers. They lived that way for the next 10 years. That's just... Yeah, that's... I, can, I cannot imagine... I cannot imagine having that kind of unanswered question yeah, hanging over your yeah. head. Mm-hmm. Now we fast forward 10 years to 2003. Pat Ditter, a patrol detective from the state of Washington, was reading an article about the flaws in the missing persons investigations, and in particular the flaws in the National Crime Information Center's computer system at the time. Believing that possible identities for unidentified victims may have fallen through the cracks of computer databases, Ditter went on Google and put in characteristics related to about a dozen of their John Doe cases, hoping to find a missing persons case that matched their descriptions. He then came across the missing persons entry for David Glenn Lewis. Seeing the photo of the missing man, Ditter realized that he looked a lot like one of their long-deceased unidentified John Doe's. Ditter quickly got into contact with the Amarillo Police Department. He mailed them a package of items that could be tested for DNA, including the boots his John Doe had been wearing and a tissue sample that had been preserved. David's mother provided her own DNA sample to test against that of the John Doe. 
In October of 2004, 11 years after he went missing, David Glenn Lewis was positively identified as the deceased man in Washington. So now the strange part. We rewind 10 years back to 1993 for the story of the Washington State John Doe. At 10.30 p.m. on Monday, February 1st, 1993, only 24 hours after the Super Bowl and on the same day that David's wife reported him missing, 1,600 miles away from David's home in Amarillo, Texas, several drivers in Yakima County, Washington, spotted an individual acting strangely on Route 24 near Moxie, which is a lonely two-lane highway several miles away from Yakima Airport. One witness claims the individual was laying down in the road, while another claims that he was walking along the center line of the road, but either way, he was somehow wandering around the road in a dangerous manner. A motorist decided to turn around to drive back to the other side of the person to warn approaching motorists, but on seeing the man again, he was now lying motionless in the road. The police were called, and when they arrived, they found the man dead. With no identification or anything, the body wasn't identified and became a John Doe until 2003 when he was revealed to be David Glenn Lewis. He had been dressed in military-style clothing and work boots. He hadn't been carrying any ID when he was killed, so his identity was unknown. A later examination found no traces of alcohol or recreational drugs in his system. Investigators believe that he was the victim of an accidental hit-and-run on Route 24, with the potential sighting of a Camaro leaving the scene around the time of his death. So how and why did Lewis end up disappearing from Texas and turning up dead 1,600 miles away in Washington State just a day or two later? Uh, here are some facts about the case. It is known that David was last seen alive by someone on the 30th of January, but where and by whom had not been revealed. There's a lot of uncertainty about their VCR. One source claims that it had no timer function, so David would have had to manually set it to start recording the Super Bowl on the 31st, which would then place him in Amarillo, Texas at the start of the Super Bowl. Since investigators believe David was home to activate the record function, it's widely thought that a timer function either wasn't present or wasn't working. The only thing missing from David's closet was a polo sweatsuit and tennis shoes. He was found on that road in Washington wearing military-style clothing and work boots, and Karen said that David didn't have any clothing like that and he had never worn anything like that. There are no records of any plane tickets to Washington being bought under David's name. It's possible he could have just purchased the tickets there with cash, though, because it was pre-9-11, mm -hmm. and back then you could do that. Yeah. As far as driving, Google Maps says today, in 2021, it would be exactly a 24-hour drive. And that's with perfect weather. Mm -hmm. Even if everything and would have no worked, traffic, yeah, right? no traffic, no snowstorms. Even if everything would have worked out perfectly, he would have gotten there with only an hour or two to spare before he was found dead on the road. Reddit user Kelly as Ghost writes, quote, "I don't think any flights besides Seattle came and went to Yakima at that time. For a short while, there was another city, but I don't think that's in the right time frame. The dude would have had to fly from one airport to Seattle and then connect to Yakima." And by most accounts, David was blind without his thick glasses, and when he was found, his glasses were in his shirt pocket, not on his face. And this story leaves you with tons of questions. Mm -hmm. Why did David leave his home in Texas and travel 1,600 miles to Washington? He had no known ties to the state. Was he running from a perceived threat to his life? Was he meeting someone? Did he simply want to leave his family? Did he ever intend to return? Why were his ring and watch on the kitchen counter? How did David get to Washington in the first place? Were the plane tickets bought in his name connected to his plans? 
If so, what is the connection to L.A.? Had he planned to fly home from Washington through L.A.? Why was his car still at the county court building? If it was still there, how did he leave the court building to get to Washington? As the author says on the I Did It For Jody blog, quote, Dallas is a six-hour drive or a one-hour flight from the Lewis home. If David purchased a ticket departing from Dallas, how did he get there? He didn't drive himself. His vehicle was left behind in downtown Amarillo. If he traveled via plane, why did he purchase his ticket to Dallas with an alias, but purchase a ticket back to Amarillo under his real name? What is the significance of the military-style clothing and work boots when he was found dead? What was David referring to when he told his wife that his life had been in danger? Was it connected to his job? Why was David walking on that road before he was killed? Did he have some kind of breakdown or other mental health issues that had led to his initial decision to leave home? Was it a suicide attempt? Was David's hit and run truly an accident or linked to the danger he believed himself to be in? Who killed him? Wasn't there something about his truck being for sale too that factored in somehow? It was that he had... Somebody had seen him with his car or his truck in the count in the courthouse parking lot, but he was across the street taking pictures of it. Okay. And that makes no sense. Like, what was he doing? Like, none of this makes any sense. Right. Uh, everybody says we we don't have time to get into it in this in this twenty minute episode. But if you want to find out more about this, you can either listen to our actual episode about the it, or there's episode. other podcasts that yeah. that talk about this topic. A lot of theories, but it's just it's bizarre. Like like that would be me telling you I'm going to be there Saturday for us to record a podcast, you know, and then Friday me turning up dead in California. Right. And you would be like, how? Why did he end up in California? How did he get there? It almost seems like the plane tickets that were bought were almost like a misdirection thing. But he bought, you know, was he, was it some kind of mental break that he had that he, he, but you know, when we talk about this, make him buy those tickets. Possibly. When we talk about this in our episode, there are, there are people that commented on the Reddit uh, the posts that knew him and said that he was a very, very devoted family man. Mm-hmm. And all he could talk about is how much he loved his daughter and that he, they say with 100% certainty, he would not just up and ditch his family. If I recall, we kind of, we kept dancing around the idea that whatever he, that, that court case that he was dealing with where he said, I, I'd be willing to, you know, I don't care who it hurts. I'm going to tell the truth that something came out of that. That was somehow behind this. Like he felt like his family was in danger or something like that. Cause there's people that believe he was taken and killed, yes. but it's like, are you going to take him from Texas to Washington it state? So elaborate. It seems like, so you could do it maybe one state over mm-hmm. and, and, and get rid of the body somehow instead of, what was he doing on that road? I mean, that road right. is like kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Why in was like he wandering on this fatigues. road in military yeah. fatigues without his glasses on that he needed to see and they were tucked in his pocket? There's just so many things that yeah, don't there's add so much. Mo- and how did he get up there so quickly? You know, he could have because like I said, pre-9-11, yeah. you could go in the airport, you could, you could actually walk people to their gates, which you can't kind of do now. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a different time and there wouldn't be any traces of that if... He just paid with cash. But what is the story behind how he ended up in Washington State? What was up with the sandwiches? I mean, it was like he planned on watching the Super Bowl and something came up. Yeah. And if somebody came to the house to something grab him, up. to kill him, yeah. 
why would they have set the VCR to tape the Super Bowl? It's like something came up and he was like, oh, I'm, I want to see the Super Bowl, so I'm going to tape it. I'm going to put these sandwiches in the fridge. Right. And then what happened from there? How did he like end he up? Like he was lured out of the house How did he end up on this road in Washington State? Mm-hmm. And how did he, you know, was it a hit and run? There's just so much. I say no. I think this was like, there was foul play here. There's a lot of people that think this was a premeditated thing on his part, that he was trying to get away from his family, but people nah, that, that knew, doesn't sound right. People that know him just refuse to believe that that's what he was doing. Right. You know, one of the theories was that he had a second family up there, but nothing ever came of that. That would have come out by that now. That would have come would out think. by now. It's just such a bizarre case. And it's one of those, like Krista would say, it's a head scratcher. It's a, head-scratcher. It's a real head scratcher because a lot of it doesn't make sense. That's you like, just can't land on one specific theory because not, it just, there's no. not one theory that fully answers all of the questions. No. And the hardest thing for me in something like this is to empathize with oh, yeah. a family like right. how They're i could not have i could not imagine something happening to you and me mm-hmm. never understanding right. or knowing exactly what happened how or why or who how or why it. it happened so like i said we could not get too far into this we just kind of wanted to give a little summary of what happened because we think this is a fascinating case mm-hmm. so if you're interested in more you can check out our other episode about it or you can check out because other podcasts have done this topic it's just a fascinating one yeah definitely and I think that's really all we have. So yeah. thank you guys so much for listening. We just wanted to give you a little Taste. hors d'oeuvre, a little hors d'oeuvre yeah. of what the strange an appetizer. An appetizer of what the strange <laughs> sessions is like. So from Krista and I in the strange cellar, until next time, stay, stay strange. strange. is the power of the strange sessions what a what a bizarre bizarre case i don't even know what to say about it but we're not here for that we're here for them if you like the strange sessions you can find them on most every major podcast provider whichever one's your favorite just look them up and i'm sure they'll be there they're pretty active on instagram they've got a huge facebook group like they mentioned just a really fun podcast Really, really encourage you to go check out some of their episodes. They get really deep into some topics, and it's very, very entertaining. Okay, up next, we are going from Kurt and Krista and their warm and fuzzy feeling podcast to Quite Unusual, a podcast hosted by Nicole and Noel, two best friends who are indescribable. That's the best way I know how to describe them. Now, they too do a crazy amount of research for each episode and always hit it out of the ballpark. Their coverage of the Jonestown Massacre covers five episodes that are 
all close to two hours long, I think. That's how deep they go. And they present it in a very entertaining way. They're they're fun girls. They're 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 the sort that if you wanted to go get drunk and sing Love Shack and karaoke with someone, you'd pick Nick and No to go with you. So without further ado, I'm gonna let them present their little tale for us from Quite Unusual. Quite Unusual. Hello and welcome to the Quite Unusual podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Nicole. And I am Noelle. For our segment of The Bad Things of Somo, brought to you by Killin, Missin, and Hidden. We were specifically told to do a true crime story, but we don't like to follow the rules. Mm-mm. So we thought we'd bring you something on the paranormal side of life. That's right. We're also maybe bad things of summer. Mm, we are. So without further ado, the story of Don Decker, the Rain Man. So our story starts in the year of 1983. Great year. On February 24th. Great month. In the town of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. I have no opinion about that place. Our story starts with the passing of a man named James Kishaw, who is was actually the grandfather to our guy, Don Decker. Don was 21 years old, and he was in the middle of serving a 4-12 to month sentence for possessing stolen property. But Don was granted furlough to attend his grandfather's funeral. Do we know what the stolen property was? You know what? We don't know what it was. What do you think it was? Well, it's... What is it? 1983. Oh, yeah. What was cool in 1983? I don't know. I wasn't born then. I'm gonna say... A Grateful Dead 8-track. Oh, yeah? I don't know. A cassette tape. Okay. Maybe he went... Okay, here it is. He went to Blockbuster, right? Mm. And what's a movie that came out in the 80s? I have no idea. And there was like this hot movie that was out in the <laughs> 80s. And when did the movie Twins come out with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? We're, I don't know, but we're going to say it was 1983. I'm going to say it was. And he saw it, and there was one VHS left. And he's like, damn it, I left, I left my Blockbuster <laughs> card at home. So he took it, and he, like, pantsed it, yeah. you know? And he mm-hmm. tried to walk out, and the Blockbuster employee was like, what do you got there, sir? Uh, n- n- nothing. And then he got arrested for stolen property. And honestly, mm. worth it. Totally. I mean, have you seen the movie Twins? It's a cinematic masterpiece. I'd go to jail for that movie. (laughs) Any day. (laughs) So Don was actually very happy that his grandfather was dead. Because Because he hated twins? Well, he hated his grandfather. But this is because his grandfather had physically abused him since the age of seven. Oh, no. Yeah. So Don gets out of jail on furlough. And he is staying with friends of the family, Bob and... Janine Kiefer. That night, Don was in the bathroom when all of a sudden a weird feeling overcame him. A deep chill ran through him, and Don quickly fell into a trance like state. Mm, been there in the bathroom after a weird feeling overcomes me. <laughs> Don then saw the face of his dead grandfather laughing at him through the window, wearing a crown. A crown? Yeah, a crown. Like a Burger King crown? Either that or just like a regular gold crown. Oh, yeah, know. that probably would make way more we sense. Can, we can picture 
Burger King, though. I think I'd like to. Yeah, I'd like to, too. Okay, so Don saw his grandfather wearing a Burger King crown Mm -hmm, in the window laughing at him. He then saw this apparition of his dead grandfather wearing a Burger King crown looming over him. Oh, no. So Don snapped out of his trance-like state, and he ran downstairs to Bob and Janine. And when Don found them, he had noticed that he had deep claw marks on his forearm. Yikes. Don ran downstairs and told Bob what happened. And as he's doing this, they start to hear loud banging noises coming from upstairs where Don had just been. Like from the bathroom? Yeah. Then, all of a sudden, water started to drip from the walls and ceiling. First it was slow but then it started to get more intense, almost as if it was just straight up raining in the living room. And then Don fell into another trance. Mm, Because he was hit by the rains of Africa. Happens to me every time I hear Toto. And this was literal rain, so I get it, man. I get it. Well, Bob touched the rains of Africa, and he said that it was like of like a sticky substance. Uh, What? Yeah. Okay, so there's just like sticky water everywhere. everywhere, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well that, yeah, that didn't sound, that sounded a lot better in my head when I said Mm. it, but. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then the keepers decided that they had absolutely no idea what was going on. So what do you do? Well, you call your landlords. So they called their landlords, Ron and Romaine Van Wy. Those are beautiful names. I know. Romaine Van Wy. Romaine Van Wy. That's like an old-timey Hollywood actress name. I know, right? When the Van Wys got there, the water situation, I don't want to call it water because it was sticky, so I'm going to call it fluid. The fluid situation. The fluids, but he is the rain man. He's not the fluid man. Yeah. Ew. The rain man. It's like the Kool-Aid man, but you don't want to see what's in that. You don't want that liquid all over you. No. Do you want Kool-Aid all over you, though? I don't think you want that. It's probably really sticky, too, actually. Yeah. Making a really valid point right now. Mm. All right. Well, when the Van Wyes got there, the fluid, sticky water situation was so severe that this water starts bubbling up from the floor also as it's still falling from, like, the rains down in Africa. Like I said, water coming everywhere. The landlord, Ron Van Wy, started to look around to try to figure out where this water was coming from, but he was unable to find, like... The Bas- source. Yeah, basically what was happening. So it was coming from the ceiling, coming from the floor, made no sense. Mm-hmm. So he's quoted as saying, We decided maybe it was the plumbing, but there were no pipes in the front end of the house to leak. There was basically nothing here that the water could have come from. After watching it for a while, I discovered that it wasn't only coming down from the ceiling. It could have come from the wall or... Over from the floor up, there was no basic direction from where it was coming from. It could have come from anywhere. You hear what I'm saying? It could have come from anywhere. I'd like to say that that's a great Pennsylvania accent. I have no idea what they sound like in Pennsylvania, but that is 100% (laughs) what all landlords sound like. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's true, actually. Your land, that's a pretty spot on landlord voice, so we'll give it to you. the accent of the landlord. Of every landlord. Every landlord. (laughs) Doesn't matter where you live. No. That's your accent. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. It's really jarring when you go to England and your landlord sounds like that. It's very confusing, but you know, whatever. It's how it works. They are proud people, the landlords. (laughs) 
So he wasn't able to figure it out himself, and Ron just had no idea what to do. So he did the logical thing, and he called the police. Mm, okay. How do you uh, think that call went? Probably not well. Uh, hello, 911. <laughs> There's just water, like, everywhere. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Where is the water coming from? Yeah, everywhere. Maybe you could come and arrest it. I don't know <laughs> what, uh, I don't know what to do with all this water. Okay, I... I guess I'll send an officer out. And they did. They sent officers Richard Wolbert and John Baujan. When they arrived at the scene, the water was defying any and all laws of physics. Basically, it was just shooting around like squirt gun style, Mm. horizontally up from the floors. Like people were trying to dip, dodge, dive it like a dodgeball or a (laughs) wrench. And... I picture it as being like that Usher, you got a bad music video. Yes. When he's like dancing in the rain. Oh my God. It was exactly like that. Except Usher wasn't there. No, he wasn't. But Ron was there and he was doing almost identical (laughs) choreography. It was. All landlords know the choreography to you got a bad. That's That's another thing that they know. It's a part of their culture. Yeah. The officers ordered everyone to leave while they pointed their guns at the water to make sure it didn't leave. (laughs) And um, all the humans went to the local pizzeria nearby. They took Don with him, but he was still in a trance. So it was sort of like a blind leading the blind situation. Mm -hmm. When everyone leaves, the rain stopped. Oh. Yeah. So the cops had no idea what to shoot at at this point. Like it was very (laughs) confusing. But when the whole crew got to the pizzeria, the water started again inside the pizzeria. Dun, dun, dun. Pam Scrofano, the owner of the pizzeria, Pam's Pizzeria. Mm. witness what was happening and she thought it was something demonic honestly yeah i don't know if that would be my first go-to <laughs> it's a demon it's a demon there's water coming everywhere demons so she goes to her cash register and she pulls out her crucifix oh, obviously everyone keeps a crucifix in their cash register i do you don't no i do oh good okay thank you <laughs> I, was, I was worried for your soul nicole So she places it on Don, and it immediately starts to burn his flesh. Mm. I'm going to say Pammy of Pam's Pizzeria has some sort of, like, sixth sense, because she went over to Don and, like, slapped it on his forehead. Right. She couldn't have put it, like, on his hand. Like, she had to go straight for the forehead, too. You got to. (laughs) I mean. She just recently saw The Exorcist after (laughs) she went to the video store, and twins, they didn't have it, okay? Damn. So she got The Exorcist. That's the natural second best twins so pammy says she's quoted as saying you looked at donnie and it was like he was in a trance he would look at you but not knowing you were there i said to janine i says he's got to be possessed was sitting there a couple of seconds later there's water all over the pizzeria too i've never seen anything like that happen when i went to the cash register i took on my cash register crucifix because you know What am I going to do? Not have one of those? Let's go. Okay. I took it out and I put it on him. And the minute I put it on him and it touched his skin, he got burned. That's right. The water touched his skin that was burning, sizzled. Unreal. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. There was no way anyone could have played a joke like that. It was real. Donnie was doing it himself. He was doing it without realizing he was doing it. 
Once again, that's a fabulous Pennsylvania accent. Thank you. Actually, that's a pizzeria owner accent. Oh, yeah. I understand okay. how like it sounds very similar to, to the like Pennsylvania a, accent. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's actually um, every person who owns a pizzeria mm -hmm. has that accent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it's sense. Tr it's true. Makes sense. So Don and the gang leave the pizza place and. Of course, when they do, the rain also stops, which is great because all of the fucking pizza is wet and no one wants to eat sticky, weird, wet pizza. No, soggy pizza is not good. Pim was absolutely pissed. Mm, I would be too. When they get back to the house, the rain starts again. But this time, the rain was accompanied by pots and pans in the kitchen rattling. Ron and Romaine, our landlords, started to get a little angry because they thought that Don had maybe been purposely doing things like this, so they questioned him. And upon questioning him, Don did the most reasonable thing anyone could have ever done. He started levitating <laughs> off the ground and sort of flying around in the air, pushing against the walls by some sort of unseen force, like he was being thrown about the room. Well, it was all part of his prank. Well, obviously. It was a sick prank. That is a sick prank, dude. How do you even pull that one off? Oh, Don, I'm so impressed. Danny Talent. just got out of prison. Talent. You know what? I think I saw that happen in the movie Twins. Danny DeVito flying around the room, right? Yeah. Actually, is this it? is this is actually very similar to the is plot of Twins. This is just the plot of Twins. This is the plot of Twins. Oh, Don. Solved it. <laughs> Solved the cracked the case. Officers Baojan and Walbert left the scene, and they returned to the Kiefer home with the police chief. The chief wasn't able to identify any foul play or sick pranks. <laughs> So he told the officers that it was probably just plumbing that caused the issue and there was no further investigation needed. Yeah, I think a plumber probably would have been my next call instead of the police. Yeah. But I mean, hey. Call Mario. Yeah. The next day, officers Baojan and Wolbert defied their orders and they returned with two other officers, Bill Davies and Lieutenant John Rundle. Look, I know. I know the boss. He doesn't want us to go back. He doesn't... But I don't play by the rules. I'm a bad cop and you're a good cop and we're going to do what bad cops and good cops got to do. And then they went back to the water yeah. because that's what they do, free willy style. And they brought two other cops with them. Got to. Bill Davies decided that he wanted to see this and test it out for his own. So he put a cross in Don's hands to see for himself. And once again... The cross burned into Don's hand. Okay, so he wants to prove this is real by physically harming him. Yeah. I mean, okay. at least he didn't put it, like, straight on his forehead, Pam, Pam style. style. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I guess that's the only way to, like, decide. I, I don't know. I guess. Davies then took the cross back and described the cross as being, it's not hot, hot. But it's hot. Oh, yeah. I get it. It's like when you have a crush on someone, you're like, okay, he's cute, but he's like hot. But he's not hot, hot. Like, we're not talking like Chris mm. Hemsworth hot right, here. Right. Like, he's hot. But he's not hot, hot. No, like, totally not hot. Yeah. But he's hot. Like, if you put like a cross on like a demonically like possessed <laughs> guy, he's like that hot. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Mm -hmm. Once Davies takes the cross back, Dom is then levitated once more and thrown into another wall. It's oh just God. like the worst weekend for they this guy. not getting their security deposit back. <laughs> I will tell you that one. I mean, he comes out of prison. He's on furlough. He gets a little taste of freedom. And what does he get? Burned crosses on his flesh and thrown into walls. <laughs> worst furlough ever. It is. But this time, after Don was thrown against the wall, he was left with three claw marks on the side of his neck. Whoa, really? It was three? Three. That's the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. 
Thinking something a little more sinister may be going on, Ron calls every preacher in Stroudsburg, but they all decline to help. All except an evangelical preacher who they just refer to as Reverend Johnson. Mm, not his real name? Well, it was a woman, actually. Oh. And I don't think it's her real name. The lady preacher. There is absolutely zero info on this woman online, and this was actually a case that they did in Unsolved Mysteries. And Unsolved Mysteries wouldn't even give her name. They just referred to her as Reverend Johnson. Okay. So the mysterious Reverend Johnson comes to save the day. So she comes to the house, and she prayed with Don. During which, while they prayed, Don would enter in and out of sporadic convulsions. The longer they prayed, the more peaceful Don appeared. And by the time they were done praying, Don actually seemed like himself again. Oh, good for him. By this time, Don's furlough was over and he had to head back to jail. So Donnie Boy's sitting in prison and he's bored because he's in prison and there's... Not a lot Nothing to do, to do there. in prison. <laughs> yeah. He starts wondering about this ability that he has, and he's sort of like, can I control this? Can I do this sick prank in prison? Well, he is the rain man, so. Who doesn't love a prison prank? <laughs> so Don starts to concentrate really, really hard, trying to make it rain like he did before. Mm-hmm. He's hoping for dollar bills this time, but he actually started making this sticky, gross water come up from the floor. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. So while Don is in the process of making it rain, which just sounds so cool, but it wasn't. Yeah. Just think of that song. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Me too. A prison guard comes and he sees all this water and he's pretty pissed off. As one should be. So this guard sees all this water all over the ground and he goes over to Don and he's like, Don? We've talked about this. We need you to stop clogging the toilet. Okay. <laughs> I understand. Sometimes it's difficult to, but we need to be adults. Grow up, Don. We need to stop clogging the toilet. Okay. And Don tells him, actually, I did it with my mind. Obviously, the guard doesn't believe him. Yeah. So to prove Don wrong, the guard dares Don, because everyone here is an adult, mm. dares Don to make it rain in the warden's office. A challenge that Donnie Boy gladly accepts. Mm. Warden Lieutenant David Keenhold said of the event, what's a warden accent sound like? I don't know. You're the accent expert. Oh, <laughs> you got to come up with one now. You've done landlord. You've done pizzeria owner. You so need the, warden those now. Those might be the only ones I know. What's a warden sound like? What's a warden sound like? Okay, I got this. Ready? Mm. I was sitting at the desk writing a report. <laughs> I was all about, do you hear the subtle difference? Yeah, that's definitely what a warden sounds like. I think, yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like there, it's just there. I've seen Orange is the New Black. So, yeah. 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 I was sitting at the desk writing a report. I was all by myself in the administration area. Nobody else was around. It was approximately eight in the evening. At the time, I didn't feel anything, but then my shirt was sort of drooping down mm-hmm. and not in a sexy way. <laughs> And right around the center of my sternum, about four inches long, two inches wide, I was saturated with water. I was startled. I was scared. I was intrigued. Having witnessed what Don can do firsthand, everyone in the prison just has no choice but to believe Don. So the warden decides to call his friend, Reverend Blackburn, for some help. They tell the Reverend what's going on, and he doesn't believe this at all. This makes Don super angry, and all of a sudden his demeanor changes. His cell suddenly becomes filled with a strong odor, 
and the rain comes again. And as we know from other demonic possessions, usually there's a Protestant smell involved. Yeah, poltergeists and demons, they don't smell too too good. We're like polter yikes. <laughs> the Reverend describes a smell as the smell similar to death, but multiplied by five. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's a math guy. So mm-hmm. like five deaths. Yeah, like if there were like five dead guys, okay. that's exactly what this would smell like. <laughs> not it. four, not six. Five. Yes. The reverend who now believes Don decides to put on that Madonna song, like a prayer. Mm, And they sit down and they also pray and then sing just like the chorus of that song because it's in the Bible. (laughs) And while the two are... Genesis 1. Yes, Genesis 1 includes the lyrics to the Madonna song, like a prayer. Mm. Little known fact. Don't check. Just trust us. While the two are praying together, the only thing that does not get wet in the cell is the Bible, because it was a laminated version that the priest likes to read in the pool. (laughs) It's his bathtub Bible? That's his bathtub Bible. Okay. The reverend said, so help me, it was a frightening thing. I think I was praying more for me than for him. I prayed, and it was only a brief period, and the rain stopped. He subsided, and you could feel a peace. He said, thank you. He got a tear in his eyes. We hugged, and we prayed together. He was possessed. There was no doubt in my mind. There's no way a human could do what he did in that room. There's no way that he did anything. But what he did was spiritual, and it wasn't of God. Guaranteed, it was not of God. Well, this last episode that Don had would mark the last time that Don would ever be able to make it rain. Sad. I know. So sad. I'm so sad for him. His life basically returned back to normal after this. Don's story has been featured on Unsolved Mysteries. It was an, on an episode in 1993. Those were the good years. And also, he was featured on the show Paranormal Witness in 2011. I've never seen that show. I haven't either, I don't think. In total, nine witnesses, including all of the policemen who were involved and the prison warden, have gone on record to say that what Don says is true and that they have absolutely no explanation for what happened till this day wow so they all agree that's crazy yeah nine Mm -hmm. that's german for no don has always believed that it was the angry spirit of his dead grandfather coming back from the grave to abuse him to abuse him one last time makes sense because i remember reading about this and actually Don always told him that his Burger King crown was really stupid, mm. so his grandfather kind of hated him back. Yeah, Don was a McDonald's guy. Oh, my God. Like, Mickey D's all day. Mm. Can't blame him. Mm-mm. Others think that it was due to Don's pent-up anger and the frustration that he had kept buried over the years that suddenly came bursting through when his grandfather died. Another theory is that it was a poltergeist because of the presence of water in this case. Water is a feature of some other poltergeist cases, such as the sweating walls and the unusual case of Jackie Hernandez of San Pedro, California, which could be another episode. I think it should be. So stay tuned. Maybe we'll do it. Apparently, finding random puddles of water is a thing poltergeists do and also they start random fires too oh oh yeah because the the puddles of water are there just in case their random fires get out of control 
Which, speaking of fires, in 2012, our friend Don made headlines once again because he was charged with arson after setting fire to a restaurant in Tobyhanna, Pennsylvania, which is kind of ironic considering he's the rain man. Oh! Dang, dude. So that is the story of Don Decker, the rain man. Very, very unusual. Wow, that is a super crazy story. Um, It had everything that I love. It had water. It had rain. It had Don Decker. Burger King. It had Burger King crowns. Um, It had dissing Burger King crowns, which (laughs) I love doing. Uh, It had a landlord in it, which honestly, more landlord representation Mm, is what I'm saying. 2022. Various different accents. (laughs) They they all have that, though. That's fine. So if you like what you hear, make sure to check us out. We are the Quite Unusual Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, like basically all the social yeah. means, honestly. Yeah, yeah. We're at Quite Unusual Pod on everything. And then, I don't know, I hope you like us. And we hope you stay tuned and maybe listen to some more of our episodes. Join our coven if you won't. Mm. And this brings us to the part of our show where we say... Remember to celebrate the strange. And keep it unusual. Bye. Bye. You know, we, we, you try to put a podcast event together and you create certain rules for everybody to go by so things run smoothly. And then you invite a podcast like Quite Unusual that just flaunts the rules and makes everything about them. So disappointing. No, 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 no. They're they're good girls. They're just confused. They just need a little help. So maybe if you listen and you start commenting, we can get them back on the right path of life because they clearly need some direction, some guidance. But they are one of my favorite podcasts, I'm ashamed to admit. Uh, hope you will go check them out. Again, like they said, you can find them pretty much anywhere. They are super crazy active on Instagram. They post weird and funny stuff all day on there. I don't know that they ever actually sleep. Um, but I also don't know that they're truly human either. So, I, And it, I think it'd be unfair to make such an assumption. But that's quite unusual. Hope you enjoyed their tale that did not follow the rules. Thanks, girls. All right, next, we're going to go to a podcast that I know will follow the rules grudgingly and complaining the whole time, but I have faith in them. This is It's Always the Husband podcast. It is hosted by Sarah and Megan, two best friends who work in a deodorant factory and are just very raw, let's say. They're also probably the funniest podcast I listen to. In all honesty, they make me laugh harder than anyone else on my little podcast rotation. Again, very raw, not for everybody necessarily, but they've got good stories and they present them in a humorous way. And in case you can't tell from the show's title, usually the bad guy in the case is the husband. So I will shut up and we will let Megan and Sarah do their thing. Hi, this is Sarah. And this is Megan. And we are the hosts of the podcast, It's Always the Husband. Because it is. Right. It really is. So if you watch crime TV shows, which I'm sure you do if you listen to podcasts, 
this kind of a podcast. <laughs> we watch these true crime shows like Forensic Files, Betrayed, pretty much anything on the uh, Discovery Plus mm-hmm. network. And what we do in our podcast is we watch these episodes, we recap the true crime story, but we add in a bit of our um, critique, we could say, to the reenactment efforts of the crime show. Usually the actors maybe aren't Oscar worthy, you could say. Correct. Right. Or... Emmy worthy or Emmy worthy or Tony or off 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 Broadway, Broadway. No. worthy nope nope they're off the street do you want five dollars <laughs> come pretend to be this murder victim and of course that's how okay. we want it that's how you want it right, right. and and the other uh component of this right is that it has to be the husband Yes. Who commits the foul murder. Right. The husband is going to be the guilty person. Mm -hmm. And we have an endless supply of husband murdering wives stories, which is sad, really. And we have an endless amount of husbands between the both of us, too. Right. We've been married quite a few times, so we comment on life, our lives, fashion, pop culture, all of that together in our show. So if you like true crime shows, kind of pop culture, the year it happened... Mm-hmm. Reagan on clothes, bad clothing, yeah. terrible wigs, yeah. horrible acting. Oh, terrible wigs is our favorite. That's our show. But for Brad, in this special episode, we decided to kind of uh, mix it up a bit. So our tagline for our, our show is, you know, just pay for the divorce. Don't kill your spouse. Right. Just pay for a divorce like everybody else does mm-hmm. hundreds of times we and have we, we've again been married several times many times it's no big deal <laughs> um so we say just pay for the divorce but we're gonna tell you a story about a woman who made divorce in a bottle mm-hmm. and it's quite a story i had never heard this story before so women were actually in this episode paying for a divorce. They were paying for a divorce. Absolutely. It's just a, In a little bit of a different way. Yep. divorce. So this is turning it around. This is women taking control of their miserable lives. Miserable lives and their horrible husbands. Sorry, we're trying not to swear, Brad, but this is really hard. Right. If you watch or you listen, you can't watch yeah. our show. You listen to our show. We have um, mouths of sailors that have been at sea. For a lot of years. Lives. They've lost kind of that social skill. And, where, uh, and all their teeth. And all their teeth. And the, every word out of their mouth is a yeah, foul, foul word. So this is hard for us. Okay. Um, so Sarah, tell us about this flipped It's Always the Husband's Story. Our story begins. <laughs> We're going to not go back to the birth of this woman. We're going to okay. start at 13 where a tragic event, I think set off her patterns of behavior for the rest of her life. And again, I had never heard of this hero among women. (laughs) This true hero. Okay. We're going to travel to Palermo, Italy, which I'm sure is lovely. Um, And often she would move, we would find, to other Italian cities. I think we end up in Rome. But we're in Italy here. And we're traveling. We like to travel back in time, 90s, Mm -hmm. 80s, 70s. But we're going all the way back to 1633. Um, what was the pop culture like in 1633? I think it was don't die of a toothache. <laughs> um, find a toilet quick. <laughs> and I guess I'll eat this rat. 
I think that was what they were thinking about. Um, I I did do a little research oh, you did. On, okay. on music and fashion of the 1600s. Um, I think people, much like we were listening to Culture Club and Michael Jackson and Madonna um, in our childhoods, this this young girl was listening to Bach. I mean, you can really, really hammer it down to Bach. <laughs> Vivaldi. Really? Yeah. Uh, and... I, that was about it. So I feel like they all also had musical skill if you were maybe upper class. Because if you wanted to listen to music, you had to either play it yourself right. or you had to go to a concert hall. Right. And if you're poor, you're out of luck because you can't even listen to music anyway because you can't afford an instrument. Right. How weird that is. So they know? were raving to Vivaldi, obviously. Um, and they were all wearing, men and women alike, lace collars. The lace collar look, I just can't get into. Um, well, you would not have been happy in the 1600s. Um, they also wore tall hats, like not magician hats. Kind of like the fedora, but with a very tall top of the hat. I don't. It's I offensive. Feel like that gives a headache. And then the, the, the lace collar when you eat, don't you get food in it? Right. It's offensive to everyone. To the eyes, mm-hmm. to the body. Mm-hmm. How do you get through a doorway? I, I'm not sure. And then also they wore those sleeves kind of like, remember what Snow White had where they were slashed? Yes. yes. And then white was poking through the I slash. I kind of like that. So it's kind of a bad-ass look at yeah. um, fashion. So the lace and the slashed sleeve, obviously, uh, super cool, rocking out to Bach. Yeah. That's what people were doing. That's what these That's what these people were doing. So yeah. just to, you know, kind of give you a picture right. in your head. Bad hats, slashed sleeves. And lots lace. of clothes. I feel lots of layers too. Yeah. And then the heat. That's can you imagine really the bad. heat? We've had we've the had worst terrible heat. heat wave ever. Our young girl, whose name is Julia, but it's yes. fancy Julia. It's fancy Italian Julia. G I U L I A. Yep. Julia Tofana. Julia. Julia Tofana. Her mother in 1633. Um, and I don't know how to pronounce this name, but I'm going to say Give it a Tofania shot. Yeah. Had just been executed for what? Murdering her abusive husband, Francis. You take that, Francis. <laughs> Stop being like that, Francis. But then she gets executed of for course, it. Of course, she's executed. You may not know this, but over history, women haven't been treated that well. What? I know. It's shocking. It's really shocking, but huh. over the years of humanity, women have really, you know, been given the shaft, surprisingly. Uh-huh. Okay. Lots of, you know, wow. laws against our rights, starting way back in old caveman times. We couldn't <laughs> even get the paint to paint on the cave wall. 
We would have to hold it for the husband. Yeah, and there was a beating with a claw. Right, and then he'd pull us by our hair yes. back in the thing, and then yes. you'd have to cook the saber-toothed tiger. Oh, oh God, I mean, those saber-toothed tigers. So suck. women were put up with it. I mean, just, I mean, they could not put up with it anymore. By the 1600s, again, you were arranged to be married young men and young women Mm. i'm assuming if you had money because i feel like if you were poor nobody cared what you did yeah marriage in the 1600s was very often just arranged political purposes money purposes and many people just assumed they were like a prison sentence you didn't know right you would probably have to procreate a few times to carry on if you had a title or needed an heir but it was often just misery abuse women could not go to the law because there were no laws protecting women Mm -hmm. if you were abused by your husband treated poorly by your husband you were considered their property your husband could do with you whatever he wished there was nothing that would help you so this setting is what is building it's Julia. Young Julia is growing up. She also was really smart and liked to create potions. So she would grow up around different, they would call it apothecary, which I feel is like British says as well. I Sherlock Holmes would visit a lot of apothecaries mm-hmm. where there's different potions as perfume or put this on your neck to clear up all the food that's falling into your <laughs> dang lace collar and giving you big sores. Rub that on there. Um, and uh-huh. I bet they had beautiful little sparkling glass bottles and little, you know, I just you can imagine did. these great apothecary Just, just a medicine. glimmer yeah. of beauty right. in, in their the, hellish lifestyle. Right. Yeah. She was learning all of these little tricks of the trade. With growing up without a mother and a right. father now, yes. right? Yeah. Julia, Good luck, Julia started her own apothecary, selling potions for health and beauty, makeup. A lot of times, because of the smallpox or diseases, you would see a lot of the wealthier people like covering their face in powder. Um, <sighs> so attractive. Yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. lots of makeup. They would put on akin to, yeah. akin to the Twilight movies that we love, uh, the pale face, very pale vampire, vampire, face. yes, face. red and lips. wigs and horrible wigs, horrible powdered wigs. So Julia was hip before she, she knew even knew it. What made she, she knew, knew what Twilight was money. coming? Yeah, she did have this very special little potion in her makeup shop, along with her powders, her perfumes, but her very best-selling item, only a very certain amount of clients knew, they had to be vetted. So Julia worked with her daughter when she eventually had a daughter, but there is no... I could not find any information about a husband or if she was ever married, but she did have a daughter. She was too smart for that. Right. She had workers or assistants that were very trusted and they knew in of her secret in business so if you were a client buying this best-selling item you had to be okayed Mm -hmm. either by other clients or by her workers or by julia or her daughter this was a liquid potion okay it looked like a perfume women could buy it and it would just go amongst all their other makeup mm-hmm. on their little makeup table you would have wherever you know you probably had your own quarters because there was always the husband's room and the wife's room and God, they were so lucky I, they were that was a setup that should never have gone away why yeah you need your own why wing of the house away? your husband needs his own wing in the house you and you meet once in a while after you've had one too many one drinks. too many yeah 
then so you, you don't remember barely it. remember yeah it. you don't remember it and it's done <laughs> yep now this of course the beautiful bottles it was a small decorative bottle and it had this was i found weird saint nicholas that saint nicholas santa like santa the saint nicholas that inspired santa claus was painted beautifully on the bottle and this okay. vial again of liquid was called aqua tofana named after julia hmm. except aqua tofana was an extremely deadly poison nice this was a mix of arsenic that she ground in with a special formula of belladonna a very poisonous flower mm. and lead and they the Greek, the ancient Greeks died of lead poisoning a lot because all of their, they would drink wine out of pure lead cups. Oh my God. And so they would realize they would get sick and die. Well, they had lead poisoning so bad because they would have lead silverware. Can you imagine have, yeah. if we drank our wine out of lead? We wouldn't have made it. We would have been dead. Yeah. No. <laughs> we would have been dead decades yeah. ago. Yeah. They found all that, like when they, archaeologists would go look, they're like, well, my you live and you learn you d- yeah <laughs> you sure do now this deadly mix was divorce in a bottle but yeah again, sold as aqua tofana so if you were married to the worst human in the world mm-hmm. which it seemed like a lot of these italian women were married to you these could divorce were? didn't even yeah. exist that was not an option women either got married and suffered Got married and prayed to become a widow every day. <laughs> or it literally they had to yeah. go get into se- be a sex worker. Those were your only choices. Oh my God, the that worst. That was it. It. When women started hearing around the towns, the various towns she would live in, she moved a, quite a bit, mm-hmm. I think. Maybe the heat yeah. started coming on and she would move yeah. again. The heat is on. They would buy this perfume... And what you had to do, she would have to give you kind of directions so it wouldn't be so obvious. You would couldn't divorce your husband, so then you would just mm-hmm. use need to use a drop or two. So it had to go work over three or four sessions. The first drop would make your husband really tired and weak, so he would start thinking he's coming down with something, either a cold or, you know, you died really from a mosquito bite then. You 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 stubbed your toe and you died. Right. You had a toothache and you died. Right. You ate, you know, bad pork and you died. <laughs> you got a cold and you died. Yeah. I mean, you just died all the time. So people were like, well, I guess he died. Right. But this, so you're, the husband's in bed, weak. He's coming down with something. And then again, in, in a drop in the wine or a drop in his soup, mm-hmm. you give another one a few days later. Now he starts getting stomach pains. Mm-hmm. He's got headaches. He's got some of the diarrhea. Oh, he's got the die And without indoor plumbing, man, that's <gasps> gross. And all those layers. No. I don't know. Excuse the dog. Sorry about the dog. And then. Welcome to our podcast. Oh, yes. There's then dogs what you do, everywhere. Yeah. The third drop is your fatal dose. You put it in there, he'll die. Doctors come and say, well, you know, he'd been sick for a while. I guess something, you you know, we don't know what it is. The fever. He has been talking and speaking of explosive diarrhea right? these last you know, few weeks. And so, he just succumbed in there. Yeah. Your problems are solved. <laughs> <laughs> you are a widow. Yep. 
exactly and what you dreamed of could not be detected until the 1920s so women had a good long run we had a good uh, long run i know and then forensic science came about came about and you, it, arsenic sticks to your hair and that's how they get you your fingernails it really your hair, it sticks it to keratin for all of us this went well for our girl, Julia, for 18 years. She nice. had been supplying this divorce in a bottle to needy women and just making women happy. Yes. Making them happy with her makeup and making them happy with her Aquatofana divorce. Her Aquafina, yeah. Then we get some real pain in the butt. This nervous Nelly wife, this real wimp, buys the Aquatofana, puts it in her husband's soup like directed, and what do you know? She has a conscience. Mm. She must like her husband or something. I mean, can you imagine? And right when he's about to drink his soup, she yanks it away no. and tells him not to drink it. Nellie. So, of course, the husband's like, why are you doing that? What happened? And she spills the beans instead of lying. Come up with a lie and just say, I saw a bug in it. But then again, <laughs> they probably ate bugs. I don't know. <laughs> Or say a little bit of, you know, the oh, cook's the, diarrhea my, got in yeah. it. The cook has the cholera, you know. <laughs> Don't eat that. She didn't lie well enough. She told the whole truth that I was going to kill you when I got this poison from Julia Tafana. What? Come on. She gave up the entire network, all of her associates, no. Julia's shop. She gave up other women that had been <gasps> buying the formula. All of it. So the husband went to the police. She was like a super... A know-it-all, yes. yeah. Julia was well-loved, of course, by yeah. all the women of the town. So she was protected at first. A local church took her in, nice. um, sanctuary. She could hide there and live there, her uh -huh. daughter and her associates. But then some total loser spread rumors that Julia had been poisoning the water system. Your water system is already poisoned. It's already <laughs> dirty. And it's already horrible. Out of lead. Yes. You're, there's lipstick. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, there's lead in your lipstick, you stoops. So the whole town freaked out. You'd have no sanitary toilet no. issues. You throw garbage out your window. You throw your chamber pots out your window. Yes. What are you talking about worried about your water? <laughs> So the church had to give Julia up, which, I mean, that's shady to me. Come on. Don't give her up. Sanctuary. She just was like Quasimodo had. Yes, I was just going to say sanctuary. Oh. Uh, this woman is the worst of all women. Oh, this absolutely. This is a woman against women. She did not and understand the pact that we make with correct. bad husbands. Correct. Absolutely. What happened then is... Julia was tortured. She was no, tortured Julia. quite severely, pretty extremely. And that's when her whole story came out that I'm telling you now. So some people say, what if all of this is just something she made up to tell somebody to stop the torture? Really, it could have been. Uh -huh. And they say, well, no, there's a lot of peop other people that kind of backed up her story. Corroborating witnesses. Right. Oh. Now, this was, it was quite a while later. I mean, I think eight years later, she was kept that she finally Ooh. was executed along with her daughter and all of her loyal staff. No. Some customers of hers were also executed, except the rich ones were not. Julia's dead body was then thrown over the city wall. Like, <laughs> ah, nice. what's that going to do? Right? Just like, bye. Yeah. The her legend of her poisoning lasted yeah. 
for quite a while, 140 years later in 19 or 1791. Sorry about that. Mozart, another another banging music superstar. (gasps) Mozart fell seriously ill and on his deathbed, he was so convinced that he had been given poison. He actually yelled out, someone gave me the aqua tofana. They gave me the aqua tofana and they're killing me with the aqua tofana. I swear they gave me the aqua tofana. (laughs) Now, Mozart probably had... The syphilis yeah. real bad. And so his friends had to come and say, Hun, you got the syphilis yeah, real you're going bad. down. You're dying of the syphilis. It's the clap, syphilis. Yeah. You've got it all. You got all of Amadeus. it at once. Yeah. Amadeus. It's all kicking yeah. in right now. It's not the it's the aqua tofana that gave me the aqua tofana. <laughs> was Hun, he no. even married? He was married. Oh, yes. so he maybe did think. And this wife is probably like, Are you kidding me? I didn't even give you that. You got nine hundred STDs. Yeah. Yeah, because you've been stepping out. Yeah. Now, currently, they do feel like he actually literally maybe died from strep, which isn't as exciting as syphilis oh, or I wanted it to be syphilis. I know. Shoot. Okay. So that in that is our story. I she kind of faded into the background. I had not heard of her. She is a legend among divorce in a bottle women who have probably she, created their own divorce in the bottle over yeah. the years. And she is a true she, European hero. She is a hero. Mm-hmm. Her, she needs a statue that we can go to every year and lay flowers. Yeah. Belladonna, you know? Yes. And just and say, give her a thumbs God up. for you helping women since the 1600s. Right. Oh, we can pay for a divorce now, though. We can. We can do it. We have a few rights. Yeah. We have some now. rights. We can buy a house and have a bank account. We can. Yeah. So, so that is our story for for Brad, and we really hope you enjoyed hearing it and all of these other stories. And if you check want, us out. yeah, if you want to listen to some real tales, some true crime tales of husbands who are the worst, right? Add our foul mouths and subscribe. Um, subscribe, and we would love, love to hear from you. Right. It's always the husband Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Bye bye. I'm I'm shocked. I never expected it's always the husband to do a historical case. I'm very impressed. That was very entertaining. I had not heard of that one. I hope y'all enjoyed it. That is what you get. In a G-rated version of It's Always the Husband. Um, If you want the hard R version, go check out their podcast. Available everywhere. It's Always the Husband. They are very entertaining. Um, They are obviously very pro-women. I, as a husband, don't think husbands are all that bad. But I will probably be in the minority on that opinion. Okay, well, if you feel like this festival has been a bit everywhere, good news. We're at the halfway mark, and we're going to pull this thing back on course, okay? We're going to go to someone we can trust, someone we all love to make this work, and that's me. So I am proud to present to you my offering in this symposium on great independent podcasts from my podcast, Killing, Missing, Hidden. And the next time you hear me speak, it'll be a previously recorded version of Brad. So don't get confused.
Welcome, welcome, welcome to Killing Miss a Hidden part of this show. I'm your host and your new best friend, Brad. For those of you who do not know me, shame, but I am a former criminal defense trial attorney from Alabama. I've handled hundreds of criminal cases. I mean, everything from DUIs to drug trafficking to sex offenders to murder. It's it's everything you can throw in there. And I even won a few of them. So how about that? So I try to bring my experience and my perspective to lots of the cases we cover on my show. So for my segment, we are going to travel down to Mexico today. Think about the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was a serial killer on the loose. So yay, serial killer episode. This serial killer was known as El Matavietes, who killed dozens of older women via strangulation. So we're going to dive straight into this tale. Just so you know, this is an abbreviated version of our full episode on this case way back in episode 10 when we were still a baby podcast. And you can find all our show notes and all that stuff there. Okay? Excellent. So again, serial killer. Rumors started spreading throughout Mexico City in the late 1990s of El Matavietes, an almost legendary serial killer to the people of the city. Again, this killer targeted... Mostly elderly women who lived alone. And for whatever reason, he just became this folklore in people's imagination. This this folk hero, I guess I should say. And it's unexplained and unusual why the legend would start in the late 1990s. Because the first murder that could ever be connected to El Matavietes occurred in 2002. So we're going to run through these murders kind of quick, all right? The first victim was a lady by the name of Maria de Luz Gonzalez, who was found murdered in November 2002 after being beaten and strangled to death. Then in February 2003, we have another victim fitting this profile. A third occurred in November 2003. By this point, police were taking these El Matievietes rumors seriously and had interviewed enough witnesses from the crime scenes to develop what they believed was an accurate composite. Apparently, a few folks had seen someone strange leaving some of these crime scenes, all right? So the composite could fairly be described as a tall, muscular man who would pose as a social worker to gain his victim's trust. Now, why would he pick a social worker? Well, because at this time, the Mexican government had instituted a new program that essentially provided free health care to all citizens over the age of 70. And these nurses and social workers and whatnot would actually come to your house. So he would dress up as a social worker, knock on the door, gain entry to the house. And then once inside, the killer would use whatever he could find to strangle his victims. He used, uh, we're talking, you know, silk stockings. We're talking uh, uh, phone cords, electrical cords, a belt, just whatever he could get his hands on. Now, while police kind of got a good momentum going at the start of this investigation, politics got in the way. See, it was an election year. And you had the people in power wanting to suppress the idea that there's a serial killer on the loose, while the people wanting to get power just wanted to play up the idea as much as they could. I mean, they were distributing information, pamphlets, brochures, everything they could solely in an effort 
to discredit the party in power so they could reclaim the throne. Yes, I know, it's shocking. Politicians acting like selfish children. Apparently it happens all over the world. And the police were kind of stuck in the middle. You know, they, they couldn't really make either side upset without risking their own careers. So what they decided to do is just release a sketch with a kind of vague warning that be on the lookout for this dude. He's connected to some murders, not much else. Now, interestingly, they did not release one sketch. They released two. One of a man and one of a woman. Why would they do that? Why release two sketches? Well, they were under the impression that the killer was actually a member of the homosexual or transgender community in Mexico. So they were concerned that people would see the killer actually as a woman and become confused and not report information like they wanted them to. Now, as you might expect, Mexico's got the machismo culture, right? So the police were kind of brutal. They just constantly, constantly, constantly harassed the homosexual and transgender communities. They made over 50 arrests just from these communities, trying to figure out if they could, you know, I guess stumble into the serial killer instead of, you know, trying to collect more evidence. Now, at least one good tip the police had was that El Matavietes always wore red when he was on the prowl for victims. So they know that he looks, he's going to dress up like a social worker and he's going to wear something red. Now, as you're about to learn, I'm kind of terrible at building drama and tension. So let's just go straight into the killer. El Matavietes was not a man. It was a woman, and her name was Juana Barraza. Mexican police actually refused to entertain the idea that the killer could be a woman because they just couldn't fathom that they would be consistently outsmarted by a girl. Again, it's like being on the playground in elementary school, right? I mean, this would be like a roadrunner constantly outwitting a coyote or a mouse constantly outwitting a cat. It's just outlandish to even consider a girl outsmarting a boy, right? So here's a quick overview of Juana's backstory. She was born to an alcoholic prostitute who sold her at the age of 12 to one of her Johns for the steep price of three beers. I'm not exaggerating. She was sold for three beers. Fortunately, Juana's new husband, for lack of a better term, didn't really live very long. Uh, he had some lifestyle choices that took a toll on his health. Now, obviously... This left some scars, and Juana really struggled to live what we would consider a normal life. She went through multiple failed marriages, okay? And in the course of, she birthed several children, all of which she became responsible for whenever she was single. And she really did work hard to try to provide for her family. She just worked a bizarre series of odd jobs, I mean, well, bizarre is not a fair word, but, you know, cleaning houses, working in a, a, a little grocery store, um, you know, being a hotel maid, just whatever she could find, she would do. And if she had to work two or three jobs, she would do it. So seemingly she's doing what you would expect a mother to do in this situation. Now, also kind of to her credit, she did allow herself time to pursue her passion. And... 
in all seriousness, her passion was wrestling. It was her dream to become like a legendary luchador. And she donned the sacred mask and began wrestling on what I guess we would kind of describe as like the independent circuit. She wrestled under the name of La Dama del Silencio, or in English, that would be the Lady of Silence. And so really already we're entering like Batman villain territory here, right? I mean, what a backstory for someone. It's almost unbelievable. But because of this passion, Juana was obviously pretty buff, right? And this is why police insisted that El Matavietas had to be a man. But otherwise, her their composite sketch was pretty spot on with how she looked, and they had her M.O. down pat. And one thing they knew, too, that ended up being very helpful is whenever she murdered a victim, she would steal whatever she could to support her family, but she would always take a trophy of some sort. Now, again, we've got this folk hero, legendary status building around El Matavietas, right? And this just became intoxicating to Juana. And she did everything she could to keep it growing and growing. So we get to the mid-2000, to mid-2005, somewhere in there, and Juana starts dating a taxi driver. Now, I can't tell if it was true love or if she liked the idea of having a partner in crime. Now, what I love is the taxi driver's nickname and what he's always referred to as in all the articles is El Frijole or The Bean. (laughs) What a great nickname, right? Um, He was down with his criminal life and, you know, his job here, he would serve as her driver He would be her lookout, and really, she took advantage of this opportunity so that she could spread her legend outside of just the immediate areas where she lived. And it was never suspicious to see a taxi cab just sitting somewhere, right? So she could pop all over Mexico City committing these crimes while Mr. Bean here just drove her around. The situation came to a head, though, when Juana killed Carmen Gonzalez in September of 2005. Now, why does she matter? Well, Carmen was the mother of Mexico's, like, big daddy in the criminology field. He was, like, the Mexican professor on criminology. The police used him in a lot of cases to help them out. And so she kind of hunted something she couldn't kill here. He had enough influence with the police that politics went out the window. Now they could focus 100% on catching the serial killer. They increased patrols. They started handing out pamphlets that had all the information they could, they felt comfortable sharing. And they went door to door to elderly citizens' houses and said, look, don't answer the door anymore if you don't recognize the person. You're putting yourself at risk. And this kind of worked because Juana didn't commit another murder until January of 2006. So that bought, what, five months of peace. Now, all this time off kind of made Juana rusty, because when she started up her killing business again on her first assassination, she was caught in the act. While strangling Ana Maria de los Reos, the landlord of the apartment complex she lived in, just happened to walk in as Juana was choking the life out of her. Juana ran, and the landlord gave chase, 
until he found a patrol officer and he shouted, hey, hey, you know, get her, get her. She killed somebody. So the cops, of course, now see her on foot. They're able to chase her down and she was arrested. By the by, yes, she was wearing red when they arrested her. Now, in case you don't know, the Mexican police and the Mexican media love to make a spectacle of arrests in major cases. When police searched Juana's home, they brought her along as well as some of the media so her reactions could be recorded. And inside her house, like we mentioned earlier, police found several mementos from her crimes as well as just tons of newspaper clippings about the murders. And that in itself is a little bit odd because Juana couldn't read. And there was also altars in her house that were dedicated to the two saints of criminals. Well, this was just too good an opportunity for police. They made Juana stand between these two altars, and that's the photograph that every newspaper and television station got. Her standing between the patron saints of doing bad things, I guess. Juana didn't deny her crime. She confessed to him. She said she used the free healthcare ploy, uh, plus a fake nurse's outfit she had found, to gain access to the poorer victims' homes. She preyed on the wealthier victims by offering discounted prescription, like coupons and things, as well as uh, she said she would give free massages. Now, a fun bit of trivia. Police claimed they were on Juana's trail for weeks. This is what they told the media. This is what they told anybody who would listen. But the press learned not too long after she was arrested that actually Juana was at a police station only a week before her arrest to help promote an upcoming wrestling match. So she was literally standing in their arms while they were searching for her. Again, they didn't know they were looking for Juana, but it's a good story. Ultimately, Juana was charged with 30 murders and just scores of robberies. And she was convicted of only 16 murders and a dozen robberies because these were the only crime scenes where her fingerprints were actually found. She was sentenced to... 759 years in prison, giving her a release date of March in roughly 2767. She'll be eligible for parole, though, in 2058, which is good news. The bad news is that she will be 100 years old when that year comes. Now, this, of course, leaves us with the question of why. When you look at her victims, her youngest victim was 59. Her youngest was 59. Her oldest, she had several in the 90s. She contends that the reason why she targeted elderly women is as a way to get revenge on the way her mother treated her. And she also thought that by doing so, she could rid the world of other evil older women who would mistreat their daughters. Interestingly, at least to me, Juana prided herself on being an excellent mother. And actually, all of her friends, all of her co-workers, everybody that knew her said, yeah, she was a great mom. She would do anything for her kids. Now, experts down in Mexico believe that although she was officially charged with 30 murders, 
There is enough evidence to suggest that she may be responsible for as many as 50 deaths during her crime spree. All of 50 of these people were killed by strangulation. Most were beaten before their death. And, you know, the beatings, that, that's always key in a murder because that shows that it was personal to the killer on some level. I mean, here, Juana wanted to look in the eyes of the people she was attacking as she killed them. This, this really, in my opinion, this is, this is Brad being Brad, um, but in my opinion, she wanted to watch the life leave their body and probably fantasize that she was doing this to her own mother. Who? I mean, I, her mother was awful. You, you can't deny that. I don't think she dealt with this in the healthiest way, but that's the way she chose to live her life, sadly. Um, interestingly, again, Juana, you know, is arrested uh, back in 2006, but she kind of became the center of a media circus in 2015 because she claimed that she had found love while she was in prison. And she married in this big jailhouse ceremony. She married a 74-year-old fellow inmate by the name of Miguel Angel, who was in jail for murder himself. They were one of 48 couples who tied the knot on this special occasion. But sadly, the marriage didn't last. In fact, Juana told a newspaper that she loved her husband until the day she laid eyes on him. See, she had never seen Miguel until the day of the murder. And I guess once she looked him up and down, she said, this ain't the fish for me, and was willing to toss him back. In total, the lovebirds spent only 40 minutes together before Juana filed for divorce. <laughs> 40 minutes. So let's put a positive spin on this, okay? I'm willing to bet you've never been married to somebody for less than an hour. But Juana has, and poor Miguel has. If you're wondering how Juana's doing, she's actually kind of thriving in prison. She operates a small taco shop three days a week, and she's able to make some extra money. Um, if you ever look into the culture of Mexican prisons, they're much, much different than American prisons. And so she's allowed certain freedoms that you would not expect an inmate to have. So Juana, or at least El Matavietes, still remains the build of a folk hero in Mexico. Even after getting caught and going to jail and, and learning all these things about her, she's still got this mystique to her. There's been a popular television program made about her life. Many bands have written ballads about her and about her murderous activities. And again, she's just kind of a minor celebrity, and I don't really know why. She didn't do anything cool. She strangled old women. I mean, that's, to me, that's just a step above strangling children, you know? So, I mean, who can fight back better, a six-year-old or a 96-year-old? Well, regardless. So that's our contribution to this event. If you're picking up what we're putting down, please make sure you check out our show, Killing Missing Hidden. We're on all the major podcast providers. 
We release new episodes every Tuesday. We're also all over the Instagrams and Twitters. We have a special Facebook group. Um, it's either going to be KMH Podcast or KMH.podcast on Instagram because shockingly KMH Podcast was taken. If you want even more of our attention and love, and I can't imagine that you would say no to that. We also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash kmhpodcast. It will make your life so much better. You know how butter makes everything taste better? This is the podcast equivalent of putting butter on your ears. It's wonderful. All right. Well, I'm out of time. Thank you all so much for listening. We love you. Thank you for checking out this awesome Awesome program. We hope you find some new shows that you love and subscribe to. Brad out. Oh, oh man. I just hearing something so beautiful, it it just really gets to you, you know. I just oh, oh I would hate to be the podcast that has to follow that because that was it was it was like poetry poured from the mouth of angels. I, I don't words fail me. Words just fail me. Uh, I'm gonna I, I'm I'm gonna have to take a, a breather for our, our next submission, which comes from the podcast with the longest name in the world, a teacher in a crime scene tech, walk into a bar. It is hosted by Ashley and Talia. They are a teacher and a crime scene tech, which I know is shocking based on the title of the podcast. Ashley is our teacher. Talia is our crime scene tech. And they're just about as adorable as it comes in the true crime genre. And they have the coolest gimmick ever for a true crime podcast, including my own. They have a wheel of murder. Okay, imagine Wheel of Fortune, but it's murder. I know that's a difficult jump to make mentally, but they pick their topics at random. They let fate decide what they're going to talk about on their next episode, and it's wonderful. They've been kind enough to let me appear on their show. I believe the episode was entitled Witch Doctors, Drunk Rocks, and Gervinas. So I hope that gives you a little insight into what to expect from these two fine ladies. So let's get into a teacher and a crime scene tech walk into a bar. <gasps> Submission to this show. Hi, I'm Ashley and I'm a teacher in Georgia. And I'm Talia and I'm studying to be a crime scene tech in Colorado. And we're... A teacher in a crime scene tech? Walk into a bar. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I have to Good. sound smart. <laughs> um, well, should we introduce ourselves? I guess. I guess some of you might not know who we are. Yeah. So it might be a good idea if you did know that, I guess. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. 
Um, well, my name is Talia, and I'm from Denver, and I recently graduated school, so I am a soon-to-be crime scene tech or somehow work on crime scenes. Yay. Yeah. My name is Ashley, and I am a teacher of tiny humans in Georgia, and this is a true crime comedy podcast called... Mm -hmm. A teacher and a crime scene tech. Walk into a bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and our normal format, today we're going to be doing stupid criminals. Mm-hmm. Um, but our normal format is we have a Wheel of Fortune style wheel with different crime categories on it. And we each spin it every week at the end of every episode and see what our topic will be for the next week. Like this week, I we got... Um, co-host torture so Ashley and I are just gonna be telling stories about our biggest worst fears to each other (laughs) we're gonna pick a case that we know are intentionally that our co-host will despise and and it's gonna be a good time yeah Uh, at the end of this episode we're not gonna spin the wheel of murder because this episode won't fit into our format but we're gonna spin the wheel of questions get Get to know know your hosts (laughs) that way you guys can at least see like what we usually do but like with a little twist a little twist so you get to know us yeah um so should we talk some true crime i think we should talk some true crime i'm excited about it i am too uh do you want to go first Sure. (laughs) I can if you don't want to. It's fine. Okay. All right. So let's jump in. We decided to do the topic of dumb criminals instead of spinning the wheel because we didn't know how that would fit into our lives. It's Mm -hmm. fine. Dumb criminals, here we go. Talia, I have a question for you. Yes. What would you do? Uh Uh-oh. If you came home and there was just a man just sleeping in the middle of your living room? Um... (laughs) I don't know. I would probably leave and call the police or... What if he was young and not the worst looking human in the world and he had no shirt on? (laughs) (laughs) Is this like a TikTok thing? Like that, what would you do if I walked in in your house? Um, What would you do if you saw me breaking into your house? (laughs) I would drop my towel and bend and snap. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I don't know what I would do. I would probably freak out because there's a stranger in my house, even if they're attractive um, and shirtless. <laughs> I would, I don't know. I might see if they were, like, armed or something and then be like, hey, uh, you're in my hey, house. What what are we doing here, <laughs> yeah, buddy? Maybe they're, like, extra drunk and just came and, you know, needed to well. sleep off their alcohol. A couple from Melbourne, Australia, faced this dilemma (laughs) and had to figure out what to do on the fly. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Christensen came home and found an 18-year-old shirtless male in the middle of their living room. Huh. Um, He had come into their home, dragged their bed into the middle of the living room out of their bedroom... (laughs) and was just taking a snooze. Whoa. 
<laughs> so. I'm Googling this man as we speak because you said he's slightly attractive. I mean, he's just not, like, scary looking. I mean, I guess he's kind of cute. He's just yeah. not, like, a scary burglar. He looks like a normal guy. Huh. Isaac Henderson was his name, also known as the Goldilocks intruder. (laughs) (laughs) Broke into their house and ate their food and ate their porridge and (laughs) sat on their chairs. Wow. Okay, so a teen dubbed the Goldilocks burglar will stay behind bars after a magistrate denies him bail. There's there's pictures of him, like, just waking up. (laughs) In the bed. (laughs) That is awesome. He he has a baseball cap on, (laughs) and he's just, like, under this big, white, fluffy comforter, and he just looks annoyed that they woke him up from his sleep. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Yeah, and he's not bad-looking. He just looks like a... He's not a scary burglar, man. I know. That is insane. So, Isaac Henderson, 18, allegedly broke into the couple's recently sold East Melbourne home and dragged their bed into the lounge room and was found sleeping inside. I really don't know why he took the time to move the bed from the bedroom into the... (laughs) That's really weird. It looks like a beautiful view. It looks like a nice house. Mm -hmm. So, he is accused of threatening the wife with a knife... After her and her husband woke him up and at 11 a.m. on December 29th. So he was just taking a daytime snooze also. So he was charged with criminal burglary, criminal damage, assault with a weapon, and making threats. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was denied bail because he actually did have a prior charge and was on probation for armed robbery. So, all right. The magistrate admitted to being puzzled by the bizarre case and was alarmed by Henderson's preparedness to brandish a weapon when it was completely unnecessary. Yeah, I would say that was pretty unnecessary. Like, why? (laughs) How dare you wake me up in your house, in your bed. In your own home. Under your own blanket. (laughs) It's a nice comforter. It is. It's like a duvet. It's beautiful. I like it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he also was allegedly threatening officers on the scene when he was arrested and told them, I'll put the fucking dog onto you, which I don't really know what that means, but I'm not up in, like, Australian slang, so. (laughs) He was having a meltdown, I feel like. Something was happening. He didn't like his Christmas gifts that year. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So the court heard during his trial that Henderson had had a fight with his father and left the house and became lost and started looking for a place to sleep, eat, and charge his phone. Very important things for an 18 year old to do. I was going to say, he's 18. Um, he also allegedly used the couple's shower and turned on the air conditioning. <laughs> so he's just making himself at home. Yeah. The senior constable told the court Mr. Henderson admitted to police that he broke onto the property, but denied that he used a knife. <laughs> this silly little child told the court that he did not use a knife to threaten Mrs. Christensen. He used a chicken skewer. 
Um, <laughs> there's a big difference there, sir. That is... Also, though, like, is there? Like, I didn't try to hurt her with a knife. I just tried to poke <laughs> her with this really sharp skewer. <laughs> One has a blade. One's just really pokey. And also, <laughs> does this mean he was sleeping with it in his hand? I guess so. <laughs> the police say that they were unable to find any chicken skewers on the property, so they could not <laughs> they could not verify that version of the events. Wow. So Mrs. Christensen told the Australia Daily Mail he was wiggling around when he flipped up the duna. I don't know what that means. I don't either. Is Maybe that... it's the blanket. Maybe it's like a duvet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was wielding a large knife. So you're right. He had it in the bed with him. Wow. He pulled it against my neck from behind and started threatening me. That's scary. That is really scary. Um, so there's actually footage of the incident. It was taken by the husband on his smartphone. And Mrs. Christensen's blood-curdling screams can be heard as he is checking for accomplices downstairs. So I guess that the kid told them, like, well, you better be careful because, like, my homies are downstairs and they're going to hurt you. So the husband went to go look. And there was nobody. And there was nobody. And then the kid tried to run. <laughs> wow. I feel like just, wow. <laughs> so I know. he. And then the wife said, my husband trailed him up the street after he threw me away and he took off barefooted. Wow. Mr. Christensen told Australia Daily Mail that his instincts kicked in when, and he whipped out his smartphone and began filming. <laughs> All right. And he said, all I was thinking was that I've got to help the police find this person. Upon hearing her screams, Mr. Christensen said he knew what he had to do. At this point, I knew her safety was the only thing that mattered. So I left the phone and I chased him out. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad he dropped his phone for that. Like, for real, buddy. Nobody was physically injured and nothing was stolen. <laughs> well, that's good. He just needed a nap and a shower. I guess so. So that is the story of Isaac Henderson. Wow. The Goldilocks burglar. Wow. That's crazy. All right. So it's my turn. It's your turn. <laughs> okay. So on January 6, 2016, the Lima, Ohio Police Department posted the following post to their Facebook page. There is an active warrant out for the arrest of Donald A. Chip Pugh, age 45, of Lima, for failure to appear. Mr. Pugh is also currently a person of interest in several other cases, including arson and vandalism. If you know the whereabouts of Donald Pugh, please contact the Lima Police Department, the Allen County SO, or the Shawnee TWP Police Department. Um, attached to this post was a previous mugshot of a smiling Donald. He looks very happy in his mugshot, <laughs> but unfortunately, Donald didn't like this picture. So, oh no! <laughs> in response, I I love Donald. Okay. In response, the 45-year-old texted the police department a new picture of himself, a long-arm selfie of him in his car with a suit on. He has a very serious face with the text here is a better photo that one is terrible please attach the new selfie to the original post it's still up you can still go look at it 
<laughs> during during the six day runaround with police, Pew became somewhat of a somewhat of a hometown icon. In six days, the post had been shared 1,500 times and had accumulated 2,000 likes and 400 comments. Pew was oh even featured featured on an Idiot of the Day segment on a on a local radio station, The Eagle, where they actually got a hold of him and he spoke to the hosts over the phone on air. Stop. When asked about the picture, he commented, they just did me wrong. They put a picture out that had me looking like I was a Thundercat or somebody. <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. He is iconic, okay? He also told the host that his childhood hero was the gingerbread man. He liked how he was like, run, run as fast as I can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. And he was on the run, so he kind of what? saw himself in the gingerbread man, I guess. What is happening to this man? I don't know. He is iconic. He's doing really all the drugs. <laughs> Well, no. I'll show. I'll tell you what his charges are in a little bit. But okay. the best part of the whole story is that when hosts Phil Austin and Ryan Staley start asking him where he is, because, like I said, he's still on the run at this point, he changed his answer each time. He first says that he is standing in the middle of town square holding a sign that says, not guilty. They asked him again, to which he replied, he's sitting on a bunker next to Chapo Guzman trying to build a tunnel to get to McDonald's. <laughs> the last answer he gives, he simply tells the host that he could see some roosters and hens. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, like I said, this is a case that we can laugh at because his crimes were not as serious. I mean, he knew he wasn't going to jail for a long time. His crimes weren't that serious. Um, no one was killed. I tried looking for his record, and since it's not public record, I don't think he has any felonies. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So a few nights after Thanksgiving, he had gotten a DUI and then failed up, failed to show up for court, um, resulting in the now infamous Facebook post. On January 12, 2016, Pew was arrested in Century, Florida. In response, the Lima Police Department posted the conclusion to the almost week-long social media circus. Thanks to the power of social media and tips called into authorities, we have learned that Donald Chip Pew has been arrested by the Escambia county sheriff's office in florida thank you to escambia county and to those who provided information and continue to support law and order um like i said i try to find more information on pew but there isn't a lot out there so i'm going to assume that he stayed out of trouble i hope i hope he's (laughs) out there living his best life and that you know all of the pictures out there of him or everything he dreamed um they're all to his liking (laughs) yes the original post is still up all of them are still up, so you can go look at them. And That's as amazing. of today, the post has been shared about 4,200 times. It has <laughs> about 1,700 comments and 3,300 likes. Oh, my gosh. And that is the story of Donald Chip Pugh. <laughs> you cannot convince me that that man was not on all the drugs when he was doing all this. I don't know what he was on. He was on his ego, I don't know. <laughs> the pictures are really funny, too. So there's that. I love it. Good job. Yeah, thank you. So those were our dumb criminals. Yes, we hope you enjoyed them, and we hope that you hop over to A Teacher in a Crime Scene Tech, which is available 
a teacher in a crime scene tech walk into a bar, which is available on all podcasts, platforms, and listen to some more true crime with us. They're not all this silly. We do get serious. We have mostly serious <laughs> cases. This one was just This was fun. for fun. Yeah. So now we're going to spin our wheel of questions. Mm-hmm. Normally... Um, at this point in the show, when we're done with our stories, we would spin all our wheel of murder, mm-hmm. but we're just going to spin a wheel of questions. You want to go first? Sure. You I go will first? go. F- uh, you go first. I told my story last, so. All right. Wheel of questions. Here we go. Spinning for you. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Let's go. All right, what would your role in the zombie apocalypse be? I would like to say that it'd be, like, the the girl from Resident Evil, but I know it wouldn't Ooh. be. Um, <laughs> I would be the one that would just lay down and accept my fate. <laughs> Not gonna <laughs> lie. I don't like running. I, I don't do. either. I hate it. I would be very quick to die in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, same. You know, on if I survived, you know, Walking Dead, Mm -hmm. well, like, there's, like, always, like, one woman in the camp that's, like, taking care of the children and, like, hurting them around. That would be me. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't make it to that point. (laughs) I probably wouldn't either. (laughs) All right. Do you want me to spin? Sure. Okay. If you could have dinner with any killer and survive, who would it be? Hmm. This is a really hard one. It is. I kind of want to say Ed Kemper. That's what I thought you'd say. (laughs) Did you know I was going to say that? Yeah. I don't know what that says about me that you knew I was going to say that. (laughs) Um, But I also kind of am equally torn between him and Eileen Warnos. Yeah. I would probably choose Eileen. I knew you would say that. Or Manson didn't kill anybody, but <laughs> I would still be curious. That's, that's an acceptable answer, though. Yeah. So Eileen or Manson for me, even though he All didn't right. kill anybody. I know. He's not really a killer, but we'll accept him for this category. Yeah. Okay. Ready for your next question? Yep. Oh. Oops. <laughs> Okay, tell me two of your biggest pet peeves. Oh, my biggest pet peeves. Oh, uh, probably... Man, this is a hard one. I don't know, people repeating themselves or, like, making me repeat something over and over and over again. Mm, Even though I have to do it on the podcast a lot because I can't read sometimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then... I would say people who always talk in a baby voice. Mm, that kind of annoys fair. me. Yeah. That's fair. I'm kind of bad about doing that because I talk to children all day long. <laughs> You're <laughs> not, not constantly lie. doing it, though. Not there are lie people about it. who constantly do it all the time. Do you constantly do it all the time? No, not all the time. Okay. But I am pretty bad about it. Well, I haven't really heard it. Maybe. Okay, good. Like, 
you know oh no i'm not that bad no yeah way. <laughs> i don't like that <laughs> do you want to know what my biggest pet peeve in the world is yes i do when you're searching for something desperately uh-huh. it's so lost and people are helping you look for it and then you find it and then somebody opens their dumb mouth and says oh it's always in the last place you look <laughs> that is so random but of like, course duh. it is why would you keep looking I've after never you found about it? How much of an oxymoron that is! I hate it. I it, like my blood is boiling, but I don't know why. You're getting <laughs> mad just thinking about it. <laughs> That's funny. That or when people say, like, when you're talking to somebody about something and you're like, "Oh yeah, that's that really bothers me," and they go, "You don't even know." Uh, <laughs> I do that sometimes. No, no, you don't do it. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, you know when oh, people okay. are, like, really, like, like, you can tell it's because they're a one-upper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, no, 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 you don't know. It annoys me the most when that happens to yeah. me. Yeah. Okay, I get that. Should we wrap okay. it up so other, so people can discover other podcasts? <laughs> I guess, I guess so. We've I think taken, that's a good idea. Yeah. We hope you guys enjoyed our little stories and as we say on every show, but in different ways. (laughs) Being weird is not illegal. But murder is. Bye. Bye. I did not come into this event expecting to hear a Thundercats reference, so thank you to a teacher in a crime scene tech for that. Remember, you can find them, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your platform of choice is, they'll be there. You just have to type in that long, long, long name. Teacher and a crime scene tech walk into a bar. Okay, up next, we have a very unique podcast known as Nopeville, in which we have two tour guides who lead us through the city of Nopeville, which contains all the things that make you want to say nope. So they cover, you know, more paranormal stuff, like uh, they did an episode on haunted Irish castles. They've covered, like, Japanese cryptids or Asian cryptids. I forget how localized it was. But they also cover serial killers and zombies and all sorts of fun things. So I'm going to let your tour guides at Noteville tell their little tale to entertain you at this point. Down this road is a small city once thriving and full of life, but now desolate and abandoned. Well, abandoned save for the horrors rumored to reside within, which I presume is why you're here. Now there's nothing wrong with a little morbid curiosity, but please remember to stay close to your guides. We wouldn't want anyone to get left behind now. Right along.
there, everybody. Welcome to Nopeville. I see some fresh faces, and I see some veteran faces. You just keep coming back for more. <laughs> some not-so-fresh faces. <laughs> <laughs> not fresh anymore. <laughs> so, we are your tour guides. I'm Jen. I'm Christine. And welcome to our lovely little city filled with all the terrifying and horrible things that make you say nope. Nope. And today... The cases are a little strange, I guess. Strange, unusual, have a little bit of paranormal involved, have a little bit of true crime. A little bit of murder, a little bit of spookies. Yeah. Kind of like everybody here, so. Yeah, so he fit <laughs> right in. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to start with the Phantom of Heilbronn. Ooh. Ooh. So the Phantom of Heilbronn was the name given to a serial killer in Germany who appeared to be active for 16 years from 1993 to 2009. Oh, wow. Recent. Yep. The DNA of this serial killer was also found in crime scenes located in Austria and France, as well as Germany. Hmm, got around. The only thing investigators were certain of was that the DNA belonged to a female of Eastern European descent. At this point, she was called by another moniker, the woman without a face. No. Oh. The DNA was found linked to 40 different cases over the span of her 16-year crime spree, with six of those resulting in murder. Hmm. But the case that sparked the investigation occurred on April 25th, 2007, when two German police officers, Michelle Kiesvetter and her partner Martin Arnold, were on a lunch break in a local park in Heilbronn, and an unknown assailant came up from behind and shot both of the police officers in the back of the head. No oh, shit. Martin Arnold survived, and he had spent four weeks in a coma, but unfortunately, Michelle Kiesvetter did not. She was only 22 years old. It blows my mind that you can survive a headshot. Right? That's that is crazy. insane. Yeah. 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 So when he woke up from his four week coma, he didn't remember anything. He couldn't say anything mm. about the assailant or anything, but it, he was also shot in the back of the head. So if he right. had eyes on the back of his head, then he wouldn't have <laughs> really seen anything anyway. But right. devastated and angry over the death of one of their own, the German police force launched a special task force dedicated to finding this killer, racking up over 16,000 hours of overtime and offered a reward of 300,000 euros. Oh. Okay. Crazy. Hmm. They found the DNA evidence and began to investigate the 40 separate crimes where it was a match. Jesus. She first struck in 1993 where her DNA was found on a teacup after killing a 62-year-old woman named Liesl Schlinger by strangling her with floral wire that the victim used in her floral arrangements. Oh. Mm-hmm. Then in 2001, she killed a 61-year-old man named Joseph Walsenbach, an antiques dealer, by strangling him with garden twine. Jesus. She's just, eh, whatever, whatever string they've got laying around yeah, their house. Pretty much. Good lord. She's resourceful, I guess. <laughs> I guess if you have to give her some sort of compliment. <laughs> In late 2001, she seemed to start to dabble in the use of illegal drugs as her DNA was found on an old syringe that contained heroin that a seven-year-old stepped on in a playground. Oh my god. Yeah. Somehow they also got her DNA on a discarded half-eaten cookie found at the scene of a burglary in October of 2001. <laughs> so she's having tea at one person's house, cookies at another person's house, and drugs heroin. at a totally other crime scene. <laughs> she's just helping herself. Yep. In 2004, she committed a, quote, armed robbery of a Vietnamese gemstone trader in France where her DNA was found on a toy pistol. Oh. Yep. Okay. <sighs> I guess. strange. Yeah. She then added breaking and entering to her rap sheet where her DNA was found in multiple crime scenes, including a school. Okay. And involving the theft of cars and motorcycles. Oh. So she's just like, what else can I do? Yeah, she's literally just, the world is her oyster. She's having a great time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In 2008, her DNA was found inside the car of a nurse who was found dead. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
She was also linked to driving the getaway car containing three bodies of Georgians that were killed in 2009. Jesus. Just everywhere. Yeah. She was like, I'm going to do a little bit of everything. I'm (laughs) going to do do it all. I'm going to dabble in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's my goal as a crime spree queen, I guess. Well, it's like somebody's controlling her sim and like, okay, what new thing can we Uh, get into? uh, That sounds like something that you've dabbled in. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Police were at a loss of what to do at this point. Their case was going nowhere and all they had was this DNA evidence of this unknown woman who apparently made her way around the crime block as she had no specific type of crime as her MO. Mm -hmm. When witnesses were questioned, sometimes people swore they saw a woman while others claimed to have seen a man. Oh. It seemed as if this woman was a jack of all trades or Jill. I don't know. <laughs> she wanted to dabble in a little bit of everything, so it was hard to track her whereabouts. She even had various associates when committing her crimes, ranging from Slovaks, Serbs, Albanians, and Romanians, to name a few. She didn't discriminate in terms of crime partners. and some reason, over 16 years, no one seemed to rat her out, and she never seemed to have to use the same accomplice twice. Hmm, so she just finds a whole bunch of loyal people. Yeah. <laughs> See, she's really a crime queen. Like, clearly. <laughs> in 2009, a wrench was thrown into the investigation when the DNA sequence of our femme fatale was found on the burned body of a male asylum seeker in France that had been missing since 2002. Oh. They gathered her DNA from a fingerprint the man left on the application he filled out. Obviously, at this point, police were baffled. How did the phantom's DNA end up on the fingerprints of someone who was clearly a male? Right. That's when they decided to test the DNA again, only the second time the phantom's DNA wasn't present. So why was it present in the first sample, but not the second? That's weird. I see you asking physically. (laughs) You could see it all over my face. I can see it all over your face and all of our tourists' (laughs) face. They're like, what? Tell me more. This is the unexpected but probably expected twist in the case. The investigators were able to track the DNA to a cotton swab producing factory where predominantly Eastern European women worked. Mm. Ultimately, it was concluded that the cotton swabs were contaminated by the woman who packed them. Although, wouldn't it be the ultimate disguise for the phantom criminal mastermind to work in this cotton swab factory? (laughs) So the phantom of Heilbronn never existed, but it did send the German police force on a wild goose chase for two years, costing them loads of money and time they could have spent chasing other leads on unsolved cases in the process. This means that those 40 cases had to be investigated from scratch once again. No, great. There was justice for the police officer, though she was found to have been murdered by neo-Nazis. However, those who were involved had killed themselves after a botched bank robbery in 2011. Good. Yeah. They found out who who did it, but she didn't really get the justice for it because they killed themselves. Yeah. So. But at least they're not doing it anymore. Yeah. Not to mention, this blunder was known as the most embarrassing lapse in German DNA analysis yet. The cotton swabs investigators would use were graded to be sterilized against bacteria, viruses, and fungi, but it wasn't rated to destroy DNA and were not certified for DNA analysis. <laughs> when asked why they used these particular swabs, one investigator said, quote, They were double packaged. We thought they were the Mercedes of cotton swabs. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> Double package. Uh, <sighs> this obviously changed how DNA analysis is performed and emphasized the importance of proper technique to avoid contamination and the utilization of correctly graded laboratory equipment. This case also shed light onto the fact that an investigation shouldn't be solely based on DNA evidence, but should be in conjunction with other investigative methods. Mm-hmm. In 2016, a new ISO standard was issued in an effort to avoid a mishap like this from ever happening again, stating, quote, 
minimizing the risk of human DNA contamination in products used to collect, store, and analyze biological material for forensic purposes. Requirement is the world's first international standard on the manufacture of forensic consumables. The new standard outlines the requirements for the manufacture of kits and consumables for DNA analysis by the global forensic science community. Mm. So, yep. That just cracks me up. That is the phantom <laughs> of Heilbronn, the serial killer that never existed. Yeah, it's like, man, this woman's really getting around. Right? Just... If she was real, <laughs> damn. <laughs> right. She's a mastermind. <laughs> well. The Mercedes with cotton swabs. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, since we here at Nopeville enjoy telling you tourists a lot about firsts in history, such as the first time demon possession was used as a plea of defense in court. Mm-hmm. This time, we'll tell you about the first time the testimony of a ghost brought about the conviction of a murderer. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Right. In November of 1896, Miss Zona Heaster married Edward Shue in Greenbrier, West Virginia. Despite not knowing much about Shue's life before they met, Zona was head over heels for the blacksmith and believed she had just begun her dream life. Mm. However, a mere three months later, poor Zona was found dead in their home by a young neighbor who had come to run some errands for the couple at Edward's request. Oof. 11-year-old Anderson Jones stepped into the unlocked home after receiving no answer to his knocking, only to find the poor woman sprawled on the floor looking up at him with wide-open eyes. Mm. The terrified boy still made an attempt to rouse the woman by shaking her, but she was already stiff and cold. Anderson then ran from the house, crying out that she was dead, and went to the blacksmith shop where Edward worked to tell him what he had found. As Edward ran back to his home, Anderson continued on to get the doctor, who also happened to be the coroner. By the time Dr. J.M. Knapp arrived with Anderson, Edward had Zona cradled in his arms in the bed and had dressed her in a high, stiff collar and a scarf. Hmm. Dr. Knapp did his best to investigate the cause of Zona's death, but Edward would not allow the doctor to examine her head or neck, becoming distressed whenever the doctor attempted to examine further. That's sus. Hmm. <laughs> Once Dr. Knapp determined that she could not be resuscitated, he declared, quote, It is an everlasting faint. Her heart has failed. End quote. She couldn't be resuscitated because you wouldn't let the doctor do it. Right. Hmm. But apparently everlasting faint was old-timey speak for heart attack. Everlasting faint. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. It th yeah, it doesn't sound as bad as heart attack. It sounds whimsical. It almost sounds like a fairy tale thing that would happen does, to somebody. Yeah. She's had an everlasting <laughs> faint, if only true love's kiss. <laughs> Safer. In the time between her body's discovery and the funeral, Edward remained close when others were around and would not let anyone go near, not even her mother, when she was not in the coffin. Hmm. He would even remain at the head of the coffin during the funeral and had insisted upon her wearing the high-necked burgundy dress she'd worn at their wedding, along with a scarf that he'd claimed was her favorite. A burgundy dress? Mm-hmm. It's quite lovely in the photo. <laughs> so within a few days of Zona being found dead, she was buried in a little family graveyard near the mother's home. This quick turnaround was fairly standard with anyone dying suddenly and having no suspicion of foul play. However, not long after the funeral, Zona's mother, Mary, would have her sleep interrupted by something quite unexpected. Mary woke to find a figure in the shadows of her room, her daughter Zona, Ooh. dressed in what she'd been wearing when she died. Creepy. Oh, yes. Of course, she reached a hand out to her dear daughter as she looked like she was about to say something, but Zona disappeared. Every night, Mary had been praying for an answer to her daughter's death, and so she had appeared and continued to do so for three more nights, so four nights in total. Mm -hmm. Mary then began to tell her neighbors about how her daughter had been visiting her in the nights and had explained that she had been murdered by her husband. 
Of course, everyone just sort of smiled and nodded, being polite and sympathetic to the grieving mother. <laughs> but her brother-in-law felt like her story might have some truth to it, and his suspicions were further confirmed after a conversation with Edward and the neighbors who had been present at the discovery. It didn't say what the conversation was. <laughs> just like, uh, hey, did you kill your wife? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, uh, no. It's like, yeah, yeah, you Apparently did. things were very enlightening as he spoke <laughs> to the neighbors and Edward... So Marion Johnson, the brother-in-law, decided to seek out a prosecuting attorney in Lewisburg who had already heard the story as it had spread through the county, but of course he was skeptical. Mm -hmm. But he decided to take on the case anyway and began an investigation into what the real cause of death may have been. After speaking with Dr. Knapp, the doctor had admitted that it was entirely possible that his verdict on her cause of death may have been wrong. Well, yeah, because you weren't able to in to examine her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Deciding that the only way to either prove the mother right or give her some closure would be to exhume the body, they informed Edward of the plan and ordered him to accompany them. Mm-hmm. Edward protested and complained the entire time, but complied with the demand. It said that he was saying things like, quote, they won't find anything and they will not be able to prove I did it, end quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After getting the body exhumed and exhausting every possible means of murder for days, Dr. Knapp finally discovered that her neck had been broken, her windpipe was crushed, and there was bruising consistent with marks that would be made by fingers during strangulation. Mm -hmm. This was consistent with what Mary had claimed that Zona had told her when she'd appeared in the night. Quote, He came that night from the shop and seemed angry. I told him supper was ready and he began to chide me because I had prepared no meat. I replied, there was plenty bread and butter, applesauce, preserves, and other things that made a good supper. He flew into a rage, got up, and came toward me. When I raised up, he seized each side of my head with his hands and by a sudden wrench dislocated my neck. End quote. He killed his wife because there was no meat in the dinner that she prepared <laughs> for him? As the story goes. <sighs> Horrible. And a lot of sources said that it was between the first and second vertebrae, mm -hmm. which Zona had apparently told her mom. Oh. So she knew where the break was before it was found. Interesting. Again, supposedly. This was the yeah. 1800s. Yeah. Edward was arrested right then and soon stood trial for the murder of his wife, in which Mary testified that the spirit of her daughter had revealed the true cause of death. Mm. Despite the defense's best efforts to make Mary out to be a madwoman fueled by grief, and with Edward himself spending nearly an entire day pleading his innocence, the jury <laughs> deliberated only an hour before returning a verdict of guilty on the grounds of first-degree murder. Oh, wow. It was decided that he would be sentenced to life imprisonment, of which he only served eight years as he died of the flu. <laughs> And no one came to claim him. Good. <laughs> a final note on this case, Edward Shue was actually Erasmus Stribling Shue. He had changed his name when he'd moved to Greenbrier, and he was not a very good man even before he met Zona. Mm. He had apparently already served time in a penitentiary previously and had also been married twice before. Did he kill them? Articles differ on what happened with his first wife, whether she divorced him for abandoning her or she died under mysterious circumstances. Mm. But his second wife apparently died while helping him repair their chimney when he accidentally dropped a brick on her head. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Where's her spirit? <laughs> yeah. Go to Zona's mother. She can see. So whether Zona really returned from the grave to condemn her murderer or Mary just created one hell of a story to justify her mother's intuition, the murderer was put away with the most creepily accurate dream ever conceived of to this day. Jeez. So... <laughs> If I'm ever murdered, I'm going to come to you. You should. You better see me. I'll have to use a Ouija board. <laughs> what if I just like flat out refuse to come to you because you're using a Ouija board though? <laughs> I, like, I can uh, believe that. No. <laughs> like, is anybody here? Hmm. They're not responding. Jen must be here. 
<laughs> Every time you get a no response on a Ouija board, it's me. Yeah, exactly. All right, All right. that works. It'd be like uh, phasmophobia when you turn the board off. I'll know it was you. Every time I ask a question, turn the board off. Like, no, I'm not talking to you this way. I'll just throw the planchette on the other side. Of <laughs> there you go. No, I don't want to talk to you this way. Find another way. <laughs> All right. So if you enjoyed your tour today, please leave us a review on wherever you booked your tour. Reviews help us grow and reach more listeners so we can provide you with more tours. Remember to visit our website at nopefieldpodcast.com where you will have access to our show notes and anything we referenced in today's tour. And you'll be able to find and follow us on all our social media for updates, polls, events, or just interacting with us, which is Nopevillecast on Twitter and Nopeville Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to be a part of our campfire stories, which are stories you submit for us to read, either fiction or nonfiction, you can submit them through the contact us form on our website and select campfire stories. Or send an email to us at nopevillepodcast at gmail.com and be sure to write campfire stories in your subject line so we know what you're emailing us about. No tour is complete without first stopping by the gift shop before you leave. Go ahead and click on the gift shop on our website and be sure to pick up a souvenir for yourself and a loved one. And last but not least, gratuity isn't required but sure is appreciated. Visit our Patreon to see how you can support us and get some awesome rewards in return. Or you can buy us a coffee on Buy Me a Coffee. Because we could use it. Yup. We have to stay up all night in this creepy city. (laughs) Because who can sleep here? Nope. Not me. Nope. Especially with the sleep paralysis demons going around. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. And we will catch you in the next tour. Bye. Excellent. I see most of you returned and relatively unscathed. Bravo. I hope you enjoyed your visit to Nopeville and look forward to seeing you again next time. <laughs> <laughs> What freaking attorney puts a woman on the stand to say my ghost, my daughter's ghost told me who killed her? Oh, my God. I can't believe that worked. I guess it was just a simpler time back then that I can't understand. Well, that was Noteville. That's a very accurate representation of what their episodes are typically like. Uh, Again, you can find them on all the major podcast providers and they do a good job. I think they're worth your support. I especially appreciate the format of their show where it's a uh, tour through a haunted city. I think that's pretty cool. Well, sad to say we've almost reached the end of our festival here. We only have one act left, but it's a good one. Uh, The only other solo performer besides me to participate in this, we have True Crime Cat Lawyer, which is hosted by Cat Winston, who is a girl and allows her human to present stories of murders and bad things that occur in the northwestern United States. Also, the only other lawyer. Why? It's interesting to me that the two solo podcasters on here are lawyers. I think that speaks... I think that speaks to something obvious. All right. I'll shut up. Let's get on with True Crime Cat Lawyer. Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Mandy Stavick grew up in Acme, Washington, a 
about an hour and a half north of Seattle. Mandy's parents were divorced, and her mother Mary had moved the kids to Acme from Alaska. Acme is a tiny town in Whatcom County. It was described as a place where people didn't lock their doors. Mandy was described as a bright and vivacious teen. She was athletic. She rode horseback, played softball, ran track, and played basketball. Mandy was an honor student and a cheerleader. At the time this case took place in 1989, Mandy was 18 years old, had just graduated from Mount Baker High School, and was a freshman at Central Washington University. Mandy was home for Thanksgiving break. The day after Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1989, Mandy went for an afternoon jog. She took her German Shepherd, Kyra, with her. Her typical route took her down Strand Road, where her house was, to the Nooksack River, then she'd loop back around. After about two hours, Kyra came back alone. Mandy was gone. An exhaustive search took place. Mandy's mother got in touch with Mandy's boyfriend at the time, Rick Zender. The couple, who met in high school, had been dating off and on for about three years. Zender was the one who brought Mandy home for Thanksgiving. He didn't have any information about Mandy's disappearance. Three days later, on November 27th, Mandy's body was found in the Nooksack River. She was found just six miles from her home. She was only wearing her socks and shoes. There were no signs of a struggle at the location where the body was found. An autopsy confirmed Mandy's cause of death was drowning. This puzzled Mandy's family as Mandy was a strong swimmer and the water in the river was shallow. How could she have drowned? Investigators had an answer to that question. They believed Mandy was unconscious at the time of her death. DNA was collected from Mandy's body, but this was 1989, so DNA testing was was in its infancy and there wasn't much police could do with it at the time. However, investigators were able to send some samples to the FBI, but no one in the registry at the time was a match. 30 men provided saliva samples for DNA comparison, but there were no matches. Despite the fact that Mandy's death rocked the small community of Acme, her case eventually went cold. Investigators looked into the possibility that Mandy was a victim of the Green River Killer. He was also active around this time, but Mandy's death didn't fit the profile of Gary Ridgway. For years, police had nothing to go on. They had no leads, no tips, no persons of interest, and no suspects. The DNA samples were analyzed in 2009 and 2013, but again, no matches were found. In 2013, two old acquaintances of Timothy Bass reported a tip about him to police. It's not clear what the tip was, but investigators decided to interview Bass. He initially refused to give police a DNA sample, which was suspicious, of course. But police wouldn't give up that easily. They tracked down Bass's employer, Franz Bakery, and Bass's supervisor gave police a copy of his delivery route. Police didn't have a search warrant or a subpoena, so they couldn't compel any sample from Bass. They caught a lucky break, though. 
Bass's manager provided them with a plastic cup and a Coke can used by Bass so they could test it. When the DNA testing results came back, Bass's DNA was a 1 in 11 quadrillion match to Timothy Bass. Police finally had their man, 28 years after Mandy's murder. Bass was arrested in 2017. He tried to explain away his DNA by telling investigators he had a secret relationship with Mandy. There is absolutely no evidence that this assertion was true, and it was in contradiction to his earlier claims that he didn't have any contact with Mandy and barely knew her. Bass was charged with first-degree murder, but he maintained his innocence and denied any involvement with Mandy's murder. So who was Timothy Bass? Well, he was a neighbor of the Stavics back in 1989. Despite the fact that he lived on the same road as the Stavics, he wasn't contacted by authorities back in 1989. Mandy frequently jogged past Bass's house, and his younger brother Tom was actually friends with Mandy. Bass got married in 1990 and moved to Everson, Washington, about 30 minutes northwest of Acme. He and his wife had three kids, but his wife described Bass as a very controlling. His wife originally provided Bass with an alibi for the day of the murder, telling police that Bass was with her all day, even though that wasn't true. The couple eventually divorced, which is when the wife told police that the alibi was a lie. Bass wanted her to provide him with an alibi, so she did. Bass had no prior criminal history in Washington, but he was accused of physical abuse by his ex-wife in 2010. Bass's trial was three weeks long. His brother Tom testified for the prosecution, telling the judge and the jury that he had also been approached by Bass to lie and provide an alibi for him. Bass's defense attorney tried to argue that the police's collection of the Coke can was illegal, but the judge ruled that the DNA sample was admissible as evidence. Bass's defense attorney also presented the losing argument that Mandy's death was a, quote, mystery, end quote. Bass didn't testify in his own defense. On May 24, 2019, the jury convicted Bass of first-degree murder. Bass was sentenced to the maximum of 320 months, or roughly 27 years, in prison. He is incarcerated at Clallam Bay Correction Center under close custody, which means less freedom of movement for him. His tentative release date is set for sometime in January 2036. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages can be found in our show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you want more content, head over to our Patreon to join one of our available tiers and receive monthly mini and bonus episodes, as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Wasn't that nice to have a podcast that was professional sounding, followed the rules, and just told a good story? 
Such su such contrast to the rest of the nonsense I put y'all through, right? All right. Well, again, that was True Crime Cat Lawyer. You can find her work on every major podcasting platform out there, of course. And with that, we are done. So thank you all for listening. Really, really hope that you found a new podcast or two to listen to. Please, any podcast that you found that you like, subscribe. Leave them a rating. A nice review would be helpful. And most importantly, share with your friends. That's how we grow. We can't spend $40,000 a month on advertising. We got to rely on folks saying, hey, you know what? This show, it's not garbage. Maybe you should check it out. So please, share us. Tell your friends. We're not all garbage. We're some garbage, but not all garbage, right? All right. Well, with that... I'm going to close this down. We have to move the space because the Shriners are coming in. And they're kind of hinky about timetables. So, on behalf of the Strange Sessions podcast, on behalf of Quite Unusual, it's always the husband, a teacher in a crime scene tech walk into a bar. On behalf of Nopeville and True Crime Cat Lawyer, I am Brad from Killing Miss and Hidden. Thanking you for listening, wishing you the best, and reminding you, just do something nice this week. Go out and buy some ice cream for yourself, or go adopt a pet, or, you know, tell that guy in your office that won't shut up that it's time to close his mouth. Do something to make the world a better place. All right. We love you all. We appreciate you all, and we hope you enjoyed our endeavor here. Brad out.